good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter! All right, easy, Geraldo. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking Bald Ripley, we're talking 85, and we're talking sexy, sexy Charles Dance. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking Furious Fincher fighting with a frantic fox. Jesus God. (laughs) I'm sorry, are we in grade school right now? I really like alliteration, so I think I'm going to try to make that my thing now for all these episodes. (laughs) Oh God, okay, well, uh, thanks for the advance warning, that's good to know. Everyone, we are talking David Fincher's question mark, Alien 3. Yes, and folks, a gentle reminder that we are watching the assembly cut, which gives us 30 more minutes of content. Yes, so um, if you're like, well, which one did I watch? Um, Well, there's two ways to tell. One, is your movie two hours long or two and a half hours long? (laughs) That's a pretty easy one, yeah. Or does the alien come out via a dog or via an ox? Right, and I think the other final one is, does the alien queen pop out of Ripley as she dies or not? Yeah, yeah, there's a bunch of other shit too, but those are your big tells. But yeah, if your movie is two hours and 24 minutes long, you are watching the correct version and the better version of Alien 3. Yeah, as I said at the end of last week's episode, I will not watch that theatrical cut. I honestly think I've only seen it on TV, I think? Yeah. This is maybe my third or fourth time watching this movie because I just, I have a newfound appreciation for it after watching it, but it's Mm -hmm. definitely a, it's not a, like a happy viewing experience. I don't like to revisit it very often. Oh no, this movie is fucking depressing as fuck. (laughs) And I also want to point out that this is our final week of threes, Joe. We have done a month of threes and it has been a saga right like every single one of them when we get into the production of this one which is going to have a lot in common with scream 3 yeah they've all been kind of weird outcasts of their own respective franchises haven't they this is true but i also feel like i've gained a newfound appreciation for the weirdness that seems to pop up in a third entry of a franchise i agree i'd rather have weird and entertaining than not weird and boring this is true. <laughs> but, 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 we've gone on for far too long because we actually have a guest coming on this episode with us to discuss yes. Alien 3. And she is a return guest. So, everyone, she is the creator and co-host of the Afro Horror Podcast, which looks at how black actors and actresses are portrayed in modern horror films. She is, um, as we said, a returning guest, having previously appeared in our episode on Orphan. So go check that out if you haven't listened to it yet. Please welcome Sharday Sellers. Here I am. (laughs) (laughs) She's back. Guess who's back in the house? She's back. And she's so happy to be wrapping up your week of threes because three is my lucky number. Oh my God. Me too. That's why my name is Trace. What? Shut up. No, I'm not kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Not actually a joke, a real fact. No. So my real name is Lloyd, and I'm the third Lloyd in my family. So my parents named me Trace as a nickname because of Unodos Trace. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I, I think I just realized today that you're Latino, so awesome. <laughs> I am definitely not Latino. My parents are just from Louisiana, and I think they thought they were being, like, 
cold I don't know fiber. what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> this is all very confusing. Although it's my favorite story today. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can't believe I haven't talked about that in a whole month of threes, Joe. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we are doing threes. I'm a three. Charday's lucky number is three. Like, I don't even know. I have no connection to threes. I'm the odd man out here. Oh, wait, I'm the weird one. I'm the three. Oh, my You're God. You're the three. <laughs> Charday, how are you doing? It's a pleasure to have you back. Thank you. I'm so happy to be back. Um, I had so much fun on our Orphan episode. I hope you bring me back once that movie is remade oh or God. the sequel is made. Oh, we have thoughts. It'll be a Patreon episode. And you know what? I'm going to say it, Joe. We normally don't have guests on Patreon, but that might be a special enough occasion to bring someone on. That could be a ridiculous time. So, yes. (laughs) Love Orphan. I'm championing for it. I want it to win. I do. And I'm happy to be back. It's also, speaking of threes, it's Afro Horror's third season. So, this feels like a good year. Well, yeah. So, you just finished your second season in December, right? And you finished up with Halloween H2O. Yeah. What a way to cap a year, right? (laughs) Perfect. Can you tell people what your first episode of season three will be? That is such a great question. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the answer is no. I know. It. Our first um, episode would be Sugar Hill, the black oh, exploitation horror. Wow. Ooh. Okay. You're going classic. Super excited. Yeah. We're, this is our year of anniversaries. So every film, every month that we have an episode, it's because it's celebrating an anniversary that month. Okay. I was going to be like, wait, I thought you did everything from 1990 and beyond, but that, that was 90, 93, 94. So never mind. I was about to like correct your ass. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Yes, please correct a black woman about black. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> it felt right to do Sugar Film, a black exploitation film during Black History Month. Yeah. So I was like, we got to do Sugar Hill. Um, so that'll be our February episode. Good. Well, Amazing. that'll be super exciting. And also, congratulations on season... You're going into season three. <gasps> yeah. Another three. This is perfect. Because yeah. this is your season three, right? It is. Yeah, <laughs> our seasons like we we just call it years. Like it's our third year, which I guess is season three for us. So sure. that's how we do it. So when we switched to a monthly episodes, because I was just way too busy to commit mm-hmm. to the weekly, it just equaled out. Like, all right, we're getting twelve episodes this year, eleven. I think that's a really <laughs> good way. It also gives you more time to do the prep work and stuff. I mean, again, busy people, busy lives. Like mm-hmm. it's sometimes necessary. And we get longer content, so we just taped our um, Us episode for March, and it's three hours long. Right, okay. (laughs) Enjoy that one. Bonus. (laughs) So, okay, Sade, so you had actually had the opportunity to come on to a previous episode, but then Joe mentioned Alien 3, and you said, oh, that one. Yeah. What made you want to come do this one? I was actually held at virtual gunpoint. I really didn't have a choice. It was more like, (laughs) we're going to have you do three, and it's sure. I was like, we could have you on this other film, which I'm sure you would be great at, or you can come on and talk about Alien 3, which will be amazing. Yes. Coercion. Coercion? <laughs> Coercion. Yeah, yeah, Coercion. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> Much like David Fincher in the Fox relationship. Wow. I am Fox <laughs> in this relationship? That yeah. is it. Lady, no. you're out of here. Get out of here. Um, I actually I actually was grateful for this one because I haven't revisited this film in such a long time, and it's my first time watching the assembly cut. <gasps> Only oh. seen the theatrical. Okay. So a lot of memories and a lot of feelings. Um, so I, I'm happy that it worked out this way. It's serendipitous. Okay. So without going into too much explicit detail, what are your overall thoughts of the assembly cut? More women need to be involved in production. Oh, interesting. <laughs> ah, okay. Okay. Yes. I like it. Yes. Well, 
I do like this movie a lot. I, I actually raised it, I think, from a three-star to a four-star film because even though I don't think it meets the highs of the of Alien or Aliens for me, which I think is how a lot of people feel. Oh, yeah. I still kind of admire what it's trying to do. And mm-hmm. knowing the production history, like it's kind of like, oh, this poor thing. <laughs> it's a wonder that we even got a film out of this. Yeah, exactly. But Joe, this is really your baby. This is 100% my baby. When we were talking about threes and I realized that we could talk about this, I immediately slotted it in. It's not that I like it the most out of all of the Alien films. I like all of the films for their own specific reason. But three, uh, again, it's a nostalgic component because my sister and I used to watch it all the time. But I think it also appeals to my love of dread and nihilism. Like this film is just so dour and depressing. But also, I i mean, I made a joke off the top, but I fucking love Charles Dance and Sigourney Weaver's chemistry in this movie, too. and it really lifts the film for me. And Sharday, keep that, like, more women to be evolved in your back pocket, because I actually really want to explore yes. that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's not that I, like, didn't think that, like, that was going to come out, but I was like, oh, I, I want to know why. Like, what is it? What is it that, like, needs women in here? I'm really, right. really intrigued. Everything from top to bottom. I mean, this is such a masculine film, right? Like, there's just no getting around it. And it's not even the obvious, oh, well, she's on a prison planet filled with men. It's like, okay, well, that is a choice. We went there. I mean, again, it's just quote-unquote Weaver, but she did have a lot of um, sway with this film. She did! She's, uh, what, executive producer, or she's producing on it? Yeah, it's either, I I think it might be just a regular producer or, like, co-producer or something, but, um, but yeah... She made some demands. I mean, she ran <laughs> she the set, too. You can tell. She did. And she really liked Fincher. And I'll get into this in a bit when we get into the production. But um, one of the reasons Fincher has a job today is because of Weaver defending him throughout all this. Mm-hmm. Well, he That's was burning true. a fucking bridge with Fox, like, right out of mm-hmm. the gate. <laughs> and, and and obviously, like, Sigourney, she's earned the right to say whatever she wants about this franchise. Um, mm-hmm. And I think whoever the executive was, and I'm sure you'll talk about it, who's like, we can't do a movie without Ripley was absolutely right. This doesn't exist without her. Okay, at at the risk of being a douchebag and pitting, like, two scream queen actresses against each other. So, I like the Halloween movies. I like Laurie Strode. But I I always feel like Jamie Lee Curtis is kind of like, I don't know. In the way? (laughs) (laughs) Pay me enough money in yogurt commercial money and I will come back and do your Halloween film. She's been like, oh, yeah, like, I appreciate those movies for what they are, but she doesn't seem to really respect those movies or the horror genre, whereas Sigourney Weaver Ooh. seems to have a great respect for these films and this character. Yeah, I, um, I'm i on Clubhouse currently. I don't know if you guys have heard of Clubhouse, Mm-mm. but it's a new app. It's an audio app. It's basically live podcasting, like what we're doing now. Oh. Right. Uh, yes, and we have had our discussions about Laurie Strode <laughs> versus, like, <laughs> Sydney Prescott. (laughs) Yeah. Only one person has ever fought me to the death of their love for Laurie Strode. Whereas I'm like, "Mm, mm, mm." okay. If you're going to put me in an interview room with Nev Campbell, Jamie Lee Curtis and Sigourney Weaver, I feel, I mean, I love scream. I love Nev Campbell. And I I feel like Nev Campbell's mindset on horror is more in line with Jamie Lee Curtis's, but I feel like Nev Campbell is nicer than Jamie Lee Curtis. And that was the key for me. I tried to, (laughs) and I was like, I know we should just be talking about characters, but it's hard because Jamie Lee Curtis has, I mean, the rumors are there. She's not pleasant to work with at all. And she doesn't like this franchise. She likes money. So, (laughs) which I mean, I do understand that because, you know, for some people it's a job, you know, like, yeah. 
I do get it. But, you know, I feel like out of those three, as much as I love Scream, as much as I love Halloween, I think I would rather talk to Sigourney Weaver because I feel like she would just be a much more pleasant chat. And, like, you know, she actually cares about all this. I agree. I agree with that. I think with Sigourney, too, what you're going to get, like, I'm thinking back to our conversation uh, about Cabin in the Woods, which we did for Patreon audio commentary last year. Mm All of the conversations that you hear about Sigourney is that she's got that wit and she will clap back at you if you piss her off. But she's also a consummate professional. She's got a storied fucking history in Hollywood. And she emulates the kind of female energy where I'm just like, yeah, she will not take shit from men. She will demand her way. She will demand her money. And she's also selective about her projects. Well, also, and I think that's why she got along with Fincher, because a lot of the crew did say that they got along with Fincher and he was great. There were a couple, specifically the costume crew, that said he was, quote unquote, quite unpleasant to work with. (laughs) He is a perfectionist. We should note that. And I think that Weaver probably is, too. And so I think that her, let's say she was a director, I think that she would be kind of like Fincher, like a perfectionist like that. Mm, Yeah, like demanding of quality, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm. So... (laughs) (laughs) okay no so let's dive into this because i actually do have a lot of information now everyone this information is readily available if you have the alien anthology blu-ray set maybe the dvd quadrilogy i'm not sure but all of this is there this this blu-ray has four hours of extra features and interviews and shit on alien 3 that i combed through which of course made its way to the wikipedia so it's all there too but (laughs) (laughs) but let's start with this so this was a troubled production, to put it mildly. You know, Aliens comes out in the summer of 86, and they, like, there's a lot of shit going on. Like, to the point where <laughs> even they released a teaser trailer of this movie say, like, saying that it was going to take place on Earth, and the tagline was, on Earth, everyone will hear you scream. Like, that was actually released to the public at some point. Oh, what a bad decision. <laughs> yeah, re- yeah. Well, it's because they had a release date before they had a script, and they were like, well, we got to start marketing it. Yep. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is as long as we get it to theaters and make money. By the way, that's not like abnormal. That happens no. a lot. Yeah. It just is shitty. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine being a creative and trying to work within those parameters. You know, I'm trying to construct something meaningful that's going to satisfy me creatively, but also work with the fans. And meanwhile, you've got these executives saying like, well, you come out in eight months, so we're going to need you to well, do it. The problem is no one seems to ha- agree on what the next installment of this franchise should be. Like there were mm-hmm. way too many hands in this pot. All right. Well, it is worth noting, too, that for these first three aliens, they each come out in a different decade. So you're probably dealing with different studio executives, but also the landscape of cinema and what these films are trying to do is shifting. So that's why people say, oh, the Alien franchise feels like a weird beast because that first one is a haunted house in space and the second one is an action film. And then this third one is question mark. What is it? Well, and so... the behind the scenes drama, it's not like Scream 3 where it's like, oh, we have a school shooting that's like swaying the, the discourse around horror films. It's not like um, Hellraiser 3 where it's like, oh, our studio went bankrupt, so we're having new executives. Mm-hmm. This is just like, no one could agree. Right. Everybody's <laughs> got an idea and nobody <laughs> wants to back down. So basically, Aliens is July of 96. This is a huge hit, obviously. It even gets Oscar nominations. Mm-hmm. 20th Century Fox approached Brandywine Productions. And the Brandywine's in charge of this franchise, basically. But there, it's founded by co-writers Walter Hill and David Geiler. Right. Brandywine was less than enthused with the idea of doing Alien 3, with Geiler saying that he and partners Walter Hill and Gordon Carroll wanted to take new directions because they didn't want to just repeat 1 and 2 because they were like, it's kind of done. Like, what else can you do with this franchise? Mm-hmm. 
So they wanted to explore the duplicity of the Weyland yutani Corporation and why they were so intent on using the aliens as biological weapons. They had a bunch of concepts discussed, eventually settling on a two-part story where basically uh, Michael Bean's Corporal Hicks was going to be the, the protagonist of three with Sigourney Weaver in a cameo, and then Sigourney Weaver would be the protagonist of four. Hmm. Okay. There's some Resident Evil nonsense going on there, but okay. <laughs> kind of. And then, like, there was going to be an epic alien uh, battle with alien warriors mass-produced by the expatriated Earthlings. So there was going to be a Cold War metaphor, which, again, in 86, would have been relatively timely. Right. Oh, that would have been interesting. Yes. The reason that Weaver was okay with a cameo in 3 is because she was pissed off at Fox for removing scenes from Aliens that involved her ba- Ripley's backstory, which as we, if you know that, right. like again, that, that director's cut's about 25 minutes longer, and mm-hmm. the whole stuff about Ripley having a daughter was removed from the theatrical cut. Right, which really, if you know what the story is in Aliens, is a significant removal. I know. And I will say, though, that that's a two and a half hour movie that flies by. Like, the aliens don't even appear, I think, until the hour mark of that movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of character work. So, okay, 20th Century Fox, they were skeptical, but they agreed to finance the development of the story. But they asked that Hill and Geiler attempt to get Ridley Scott, the director of Alien, to make Alien 3. They also asked that the two films be shot back to back to lessen the production costs. Fortunately, Scott was too busy, so he was like, nope, can't do it. Right. He'll return to the franchise in 2012 with Prometheus. Mm-hmm. And also Covenant, see previous episode. <laughs> or don't if your mileage varies. Yeah. Sharday, sure, do you like Covenant? I like Covenant. I <laughs> will stick up for Covenant. Yes. I like it. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Take that, Trace. So, September 1987, Geiler and Hill approached cyberpunk author William Gibson to write the script for the third film. Gibson told producers that his writing was influenced by aliens. They were like, cool, that's a perfect fit. Mm-hmm. So there was an impending strike by the Writers Guild of America. So Brandywine asked Gibson to deliver a screenplay by December. So he had September, October, November, December to do this. He drew heavily from Guyler and Hill's treatment, having a strong interest in the Marxist space empire element. Now, with this screenplay, um, so like early 88, Fox gets director Rennie Harland because they are impressed by his work on none other than Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. Mm-hmm. Right. He wanted to go in a different direction as well because he was like, I don't want to do Alien and Aliens again. So mm-hmm. he actually wanted to go to the alien home world or have the aliens invade Earth. He wasn't super picky about it, just wanted to do something different. Uh, both bad choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Gibson's script was mockingly summed up by him as space commies hijack alien eggs, big problem in mall world. <laughs> That honestly sounds like part four. Yeah, so it was going to pick up after Aliens with the Sulaco drifting into an area of space claimed by the Union of Progressive Peoples. (laughs) Patriot Party. Oh my god, that is not subtle, but sure. (laughs) When the the Sulaco boards, the facehugger that's hiding in the entrails of Bishop's mangled body gets out. The, The soldiers blast the facehugger into space, but they take Bishop with them. Then they go to a space station slash shopping mall hybrid named Anchor Point. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Ripley's in a coma. Hicks explores the station. They see that he sees that Weyland Yutani is developing an alien army. Meanwhile, the Union of Progressive Peoples are doing their own research, which leads them to repair Bishop. Eventually, the whole thing is overrun with aliens. Hicks must team with the survivors to destroy the parasites. The film would have ended with a teaser for the fourth film, where Bishop suggests to Hicks that humans are united against a common enemy, and they must track the aliens to their source and destroy them. It was going to be very action-oriented, an extended cast. Some people really like this script, and I guess it's made its way onto the internet because it has like a cult following. 
Yeah. Interesting. But the producers were unsatisfied with the screenplay. Um, Guyler described it as a perfectly executed script that unfortunately wasn't all that interesting. Although I would say that the mall setting, like it reminds me of like Dawn of the Dead, but with aliens, right? Yeah. In space. Yeah, in space. Dawn of the Dead in space. Because <laughs> that's always the funny thing is in, when you hear about these treatments, it's always, you know, this and this and this familiar thing, but in space. Well, <laughs> okay. and this script was actually going to make the alien a metaphor for HIV. Oh. Very 80s. Yeah, well, yeah, because, I mean, this is what, by this point, it's early 88, so, you know, we're kind of like, the AIDS crisis is, you know, existing at this point. Yeah. Uh, 88, Trace? It's at its height. Well, yeah, I know, I know, because it started in, like, 85, right? 85? 84? I should know that. Like, mid-80s, yeah. Yeah. But uh, the producers thought that the script lacked the human element present in Aliens, and um, Mm. it also lacked Gibson's trademark cyberpunk aesthetic. Huh. Yeah. So after the strike, Gibson was asked to make rewrites with Rennie Harlem, but declined, citing various other commitments and foot-dragging on the producer's part. This will become a common thread in this story. <laughs> yep. So Gibson leaves, Harlan goes, and this is February of 89. So Harlan's been involved with this for a little over a year by this point. Wow. He suggests screenwriter Eric Red, who wrote films like The Hitcher and Near Dark. Red worked for less than two months to deliver a draft on February of 89. Oh, I'm sorry. So he, this must have been December of 88th, and he worked on it until February of 89. Okay. But because he was so rushed, he actually, like, disowned the script completely. He was like, it wasn't my script. It was a rushed creative process, blah, 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 blah. This script actually had a completely new set of characters and subplots while introducing new breeds of the alien. Um, there would have been more Special Forces Marines. All the survivors had fallen victim to the aliens. Then it was moved to a small town in, in the U.S. with a biodome in space. A bunch of oh shit. God, what are you even <laughs> talking about? <laughs> Honestly, it sounds like um, Alien vs. Predator Requiem is what that sounds like. Yeah. Right, yeah. So Brandywine rejects that script for deviating too much from their story and eventually give up on developing two sequels simultaneously. So that idea is out the window. Okay. Next up, <laughs> almost there, <laughs> writer David Toohey, who is the director of Timescape and the Riddick movie. So he actually did get to go make his own Alien movie in Pitch Black, kind of. Right. He was instructed to start with Gibson script. So we're back on this whole UPP um, space mall thing. Mm-hmm. Once the fall of communism made the Cold War analogies outdated, Tui changed his, pr- his setting to a prison planet, which was being used for illegal experiments for the aliens for a biological warfare division. Harlan thought this was too similar to previous movies, and he was also tired of working on this for over a year and having nothing come of it. <laughs> Hi, I know I'm collecting a small paycheck, but I'd also like to actually make a movie. Yes. <laughs> so he basically parts ways. Fox is not happy, but they eventually make amends and they give him a movie called The Adventures of Ford Farlane, which was a huge critical and commercial flop. <laughs> it's why we all knew it when you said it. Uh, yeah, question I... mark, question mark, question mark. But it was made. <laughs> it was <laughs> Point, it was made. Point. Yes. <laughs> um, Tui's script goes to Fox president Joe Roth, who did not like the idea of Ripley being removed, saying, yeah, Sigourney Weaver's the centerpiece of this franchise. Um, and also, I love this, they were like, she's also the only like female warrior we have in our entire film catalog, so we don't want to get rid of her. Yep. Jesus. Which, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really, really, like, good for them. I mean, they're, yeah. they're looking out for their own image, but it's also good. Like, good. You want a woman here. One, just one. <laughs> just, just one, one we gotta keep her one only <laughs> um so they call weaver and she's like cool i want five million dollars for my salary plus yes. a share of the box office receipts yes she also requests i love this she requested that the story be suitably impressive original and non-dependent on guns 
Uh, see, that is actually one of the reasons why I do love this movie is because it is so different in that regard. Like, you can feel James Cameron's heart on in making all those giant guns in part two. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think she's a pretty strict advocate for gun control. So I think by this point, she was like, you know what? I have a say in this. And we did guns in the last movie. I want to do the exact opposite here. Right. Good. I like it. I like it, honestly, um, for most of my horror films, if we can take out guns and technology i'm like then we're really getting somewhere yes (laughs) just don't be like steven spielberg and retroactively remove the guns and replace them with (laughs) walkie-talkies wait is that in jurassic park no it's it's in et oh it's in et i gotta rewatch it (laughs) i i I think you can still find the original version i haven't really had the whole drama but it was really really funny there's a whole south park episode about it Okay, so now we're in the home stretch. So Tui's like, you know, this doesn't really work, whatever. So Hill decides to invite director Vincent Ward to take a stab at the story. Ward only accepted the project on the third call because he didn't want to do a sequel. He was like, I didn't start this franchise. I don't want to come in the middle, whatever the fuck. He thought little of Tui's script and instead worked up another idea. Now, this is the, this is the kind of gold mine here of the what could have been. Mm-hmm. So, his plot involved Ripley's escape pod crash landing onto a monastery-like satellite. He developed this pitch on his flight to Los Angeles, and basically, once he got with the studio, um, they approved it immediately. They were like, fuck yeah, let's do it. Yeah. For good reason. Yes, for good reason. And he was hired to direct Alien 3, and writer John Fasano was hired to expand his story into a screenplay. Oh, I'm sorry. I guess maybe this is also Fasano's script, too. Once Tui just... Oh, I'm sorry. Tui hasn't even left yet. So, like, Fox Uh is doing this behind Tui's back. Yep. (laughs) Yes. Yep. Tui discovered through a journalist friend that another script... Oh, no. Yes. That another script was being written concurrently with his. He went after Fox, and I would love to know what that entailed. And left Season (laughs) 3. It's a contract breach, which, again, is not uncommon. It doesn't happen a lot, but it happens. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, there's not really any internet back then, so it's. I love it through a journalist friend, right? Like that's like literally through the grapevine. Mm-hmm. So okay, Ward envisioned a planet whose interior was both wooden and archaic in design, where Luddite-like monks would take refuge. The story begins with a monk who sees a star in the east, which would be Ripley's escape pod, and it first believes this to be a good omen. Upon arrival of Ripley, with the increasing suggestions of the alien presence, the monk inhabitants believe it to be some sort of religious trial for their misdemeanors, punishable by the creature that haunts them. Also, apparently this version was going to be very homoerotic. Now, of course, we'll see that this story, they change the monks to prisoners and they remove homoeroticism. But I do think that given, like, again, height of the AIDS crisis, that would have been a really interesting route to take this film. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, in the special features, you can see there was even sketches and set production that was done with this idea. And it is so compelling. It really is a, oh, fuck, what we could have gotten. Oh, they started building these sets. They spent money on it. (laughs) Millions. They spent millions. Yes, they did. (laughs) So basically, they're like, oh, Ripley's here. It's a woman. Um, It's a trial partially caused by sexual temptation. Mm Mm-hmm. It, again, Ripley's the only w- woman in the all-male community, and so they basically lock her in the dungeon, ignore her advice, and they believe that the alien's the devil. So there was going to be a lot more religious religion in it, too. I mean, I know we have it in the final version of what we have, but, like, it was heavier in right. this cut. But mostly, also, it was about Ripley's own soul-searching, complicated by the seeding of the alien within her. So, again, that all stayed the same. Fox wanted an alternate ending in which Ripley did survive, because this version did still end with Ripley sacrificing herself. Um, But Weaver said, I will only do this film if Ripley dies at the end. I love it. I love it. 
Well, it's interesting watching her because in some of these extra features, it's 1991 like footage on the set, mm-hmm. and she keeps calling it a trilogy and how like she doesn't want to come back and blah blah blah. And I'm like, oh, five years. <laughs> It does take a long time, and you've got to imagine that that $5 million payday ballooned quite a bit to get her back for Resurrection. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. I think she, her paycheck for Resurrection was $11 million, but don't quote me on that. And it's still underpaid. It <laughs> is. When you think about what this franchise is without her, it's nothing. Yeah. So this concept was divisive among the production crew. Um, Brandywine discussed the logical problems of creating and maintaining a wooden planet in space. And I'm like, well, who gives a fuck? Who cares? (laughs) (laughs) Fox executive John Landau considered his uh, Ward's vision to be more bent on the artsy-fartsy side than the big commercial one Mm. that Ridley Scott and James Cameron employed. And the thing is that they were really, like, Fox is wanting a surefire hit. (laughs) right which is why they made a fucking teaser and then released it before they had even hired a director (laughs) so fox held a meeting saying hey ward uh come on we need to do this many changes to your screenplay and he goes no so they fired him good on him for sticking to his vision though respect Honestly, even Rennie Harlan leaving, it's like, dude, you had Alien 3 in the palm of your hands and you walked out because you were standing your ground creatively. Like, Because honestly, what's the point of going through all this if you don't love it? Like if you really don't like it at all yeah, from the beginning. Exactly. Or if you feel like, oh, maybe one day I'm going to get to make something. It's going to be a compromised vision, but also it's taking for fucking ever. Like I can't imagine being somebody who is driven to create art and having to wait around for years. Yeah, and that's really the key thing because when you're in contract, you he can't go do another movie, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. he's just sitting and waiting, whereas he could be going and doing other projects. Sure, they flop, but at least yeah. he's working. Yeah, he's like he's really working. creating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, and yeah, as, as we've already said, the sets had already been started to be built. I think they spent about $7 million on yeah, this. Yeah, about right. Yeah. So more than they paid the woman. So sh- cool. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And But they ended up re- repurposing a lot of these sets, though, which were the wooden aesthetic for the prison setting, which I'm, whatever. So... Hale and Guyler did a first draft, trying to enhance the story of Fasano's script. Um, They felt creatively drained, so they hired Larry Ferguson as a script doctor. Ferguson's work was not well received in the production, particularly by Weaver. She thought that Ferguson made Ripley sound like a, quote-unquote, pissed-off gym teacher. (laughs) (laughs) So, again, the release date is set, and the release date is May of 92. So they're short on time before filming is supposed to start. Hill and Guyler took control of the screenplay themselves, melding aspects of the Ward Fasano script with Tui's earlier Prison Planet screenplay mm-hmm. to create the basis of the final film. But Weaver did have a clause written into her contract stating that the final draft of the script would be written by Hill and Guyler because she thought that they were the only writers besides James Cameron to write the character of Ripley effectively. Hmm. Okay. So, we're still without a director here. Fox approaches music video director David Fincher to replace Ward. Never heard of him. (laughs) No. In his directorial debut, Fincher did not like the final script written by Hill and Geiler, and they fought bitterly over it for two months. So, production is postponed from November 1990 until January 1991. Geiler and Hill took a Christmas holiday and hired screenwriter Rex Pickett for four weeks to completely rewrite the second half of their script, and possibly also the first. (laughs) How many screenwriters are we up to now? Six. (laughs) Here's where the problems really start, though. And I mean, I know we've had problems, but this is the thing. So, basically... Pickett and the studio thought that Fincher's input on the screenplay had merit, and they sided with Fincher. 
Geiler and Hill furiously withdrew from London's Pinewood Studios and ran production from their office in the United States, leaving Fincher to finish the script himself. Right. During one particularly tense conference call with 20th Century Fox over the ending, the studio again sided with Fincher, causing Geiler to scoff at them while Fincher complained about their budgetary restrictions. Geiler and Hill finally withdrew from production completely, only returning during post-production. Uh-uh. Producer versus studio versus directors is fun. So <laughs> let's make a movie, gang. Come on. Yeah. With them gone, their duties are now left to Lime producer Ezra Swordlow. Okay. Filming begins <laughs> January 14th of 91 at Pinewood Studios without a finished script. And again, $7 million having already been spent on sets that were never used thanks to the ever-changing script. Mm-hmm. During filming, and Joe, tell me if this sounds familiar, the script was constantly being rewritten with new (laughs) versions faxed to the studio on a near daily basis. Cast and crew often filmed a scene and learned the next day that it had already been scrapped. Kevin Williams, it would never! (laughs) (laughs) I'm almost done, I promise. When the film got 10 days behind schedule, uh, Mr. Landau, who again is the Fox Senior Vice President, eventually took over from Lime producer Ezra Swordlow and frequently clashed with Fincher over the cost of the sets and the mm-hmm. length of shooting scenes. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Okay, so we're running behind schedule. Let's nitpick and let's start petty fights. This sounds <laughs> great, everybody. But also, I'm a producer and a writer too, and our last project that we produced, our director, he also was two weeks and they have a thing where you don't make your days. Right. Which is the schedule that the line producer puts together, or the first AD and the line producer puts together. So when you're not making your days, you're very lucky you're not getting fired as well. We were very close to firing our director because that's a lot of money. So when someone steps in and slows down the process, I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah, like this is not a way to get it out faster because clearly that person is already struggling. Already struggling. To me, it's like you need to bring in a really strong first AD and you need your producers, but they're at, they're in Los Angeles, like hanging out. So. Yep. <laughs> so after two more weeks, Landau halts production and sent the entire production back to the United States for a preliminary screening of the footage that they had. <sighs> Basically, they were like, cool, what's missing? We can identify that and work on it from there. Fox (laughs) initially agreed to only eight days of additional shooting in an L.A. studio, but later conceded to Fincher's request for six weeks when this turned out to be insufficient. (laughs) Those two numbers are nowhere near each other. (laughs) From eight to 42. (laughs) I love that they gave this first time... Well, not a first-time director, but a first-time feature director his chance because he's done music videos. But music videos are, what, one minute to two minutes long? Mm -hmm. And you not offering him the support to helm a two-hour movie, like giving him the tools that he needs to succeed, really bothers me. Well, Mm -hmm. I think this is Weaver's words, actually. She was like, I think that they thought that Fincher being a first-time director was going to be like, oh, my God, thank you for this opportunity. It's so great. And do what the studio says. Right. They thought they could just boss him around. And that is – everyone. every interview was like, you would never have known he was – was a first-time feature director because he knew what he wanted he had a vision and he was doing it and the studio wouldn't fucking let him right yeah which is why ultimately when we talk about alien 3 it's like the film without a director because he hates this fucking movie and he doesn't want to talk about it he really does (laughs) like stephen king hate the shining hate like he hates Mm -hmm. it (laughs) i'm surprised he didn't alan smithy it to be honest uh, I wonder if he just knew he needed his name on this movie, like Possible. for future cred. Well, okay. So after this sh- this shooting, they they do screen a new cut. The studio demanded a radical re edit and reshoots, including of the ending, which caused Fincher to quit. 
He disowned the film, and his mm-hmm. quote on this was, I had to work on it for two years, got fired off of it three times, and I had to fight for every single thing. No one hated it more than me. To this day, no one hates it more than me. Yeah. I'll fight you there, Fincher. <laughs> <laughs> for that title. So, so oh, okay. Yeah, and like, like I said, like the only thing that saved uh, Fincher's career was Weaver. She stated she had nothing but respect for him and his vision and style and acknowledged the extreme studio interference that he was under while he worked against the film. But also, producer Arnold Copelson knew and didn't respect the management at Fox. It was because of him that he ultimately offered Fincher a new product a few years later, which would turn out to be Seven. Right. And you killed it. There yep. we go. And so, yeah, basically this is what happens. The movie comes out May of 92. It is two hours long, budget of 50-ish million dollars. Oof. It does open in the number one spot with 19.4 million, and it makes 55 million domestically, which is... Not great. Not it's great. a disappointment for the studio. But what about those international grosses? Well, yeah. So, I mean, it does make $104 million overseas. So the worldwide total was almost $160 million. I would argue that they probably bro- barely broke even. Because I yeah. think... Yeah. The rule of thumb is like, what, three times your budget? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. then marketing and advertising, which they never yep. talk about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's not great. Not great. I'm honestly surprised that they made Resurrection after this, unless it was like, let's fix it. Yeah, I think they thought, you know what, we've got this valuable IP sitting in the back of the mm-hmm. closet. Can we take it out, dust it off, pretend like three, give it the barest mention, and then just try to move forward and make more money? Yeah. Reception is relatively mixed. We're looking at 43% of Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 5.3 out of 10 and a letterbox score of 5.8 out of 10. And just one one note on the assembly cut. The reason it is not called a director's cut is because Fincher did not take part in it. They did mm-hmm. ask him. He turned it down. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but he did give supervising producer Charles de Lauzerica his blessing as long as they did not call it the director's cut. That's so petty. <laughs> it, it's very like... Well, I guess you could do the thing, but I refuse to be involved. Well, and and what what this is comprised of? So it's it's not his vision, but the original work print that he showed them that he was like, "This is what we're we're doing," and then they were right. like, "Fuck no, let's do reshoots." The assembly cut takes almost all, but not all, of that work print to put it in the film. Mm-hmm. Wasn't he the only director that declined? To do their anniversary special too. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Which is really disappointing because when you watch, obviously there's great features on all of those discs, but all of them have a director commentary and the directors are involved in those features. And then you get to Alien 3 and there's nothing from him. Oh, yeah. Let that hurt go, Fincher. You are successful now. Okay. You did seven. (laughs) You did Gone Girl. You can laugh at this now. This is a great story to tell. Right? Yeah. That's how I feel, too. It's like, dude, I mean, again, we're not there. Maybe it was really traumatic for him. He doesn't want to revisit the trauma. But I'm just like, dude, just give us your director's cut. Also, let's clean up that CGI. Uh, yeah i mean the other interesting thing is that this film has gained a significant cult following particularly for this assembly cut people now regard this as the superior version so even as you were giving us the stats on the tomato meter and letterbox like those reflect the theatrical right but shade you're still not a wild fan of this movie oh no no i'm not (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I understand Fincher. We could probably have a really nice conversation over bourbon about this. Mm-hmm. So I'm not I'm not uh, a cult following fan member of this. That's fair. fair. I mean, I certainly don't begrudge anyone that doesn't like this movie. But my reasons for disliking it are probably it's it's a little more based with being a woman than it is about story and structure and anything. 
Well, let's talk about that then. Expand, please. Okay, so I I have a huge problem with any movie that uses sexual assault right. or even a woman's pregnancy to move her storyline forward because it, oh, it feels like that's all we get to be in a movie is either we are sexual victims or we are mothers who are struggling with motherhood. Mm-hmm. And I hate it. So this has both, and it has religion in it, and I'm agnostic. So that's not a third reason why I'm not a victim <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. So for me, like, seeing Sir Gorney, uh, or seeing Ripley, I should say, so strong. I mean, I love the haircut. I love the buzz cut. I love how strong she is. But then having, as much as I love her relationship with Clemens, it, it's not necessary, especially, spoiler no. alert, when he dies so early on. And I'm just like, why did we even need her to have a romantic interest? She's mm-hmm. going through some things. She can just be going through trauma and recovering. She lost Newt. She, like, can we process that more rather than putting her in another relationship with a man? So it mm-hmm. killed me. I will confess, I actually forgot that they had sex. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I have not seen this movie in at least 10 years. I think the last time I watched it was when the anthology came out in 2011. And I get what you're saying because, okay, so she's pregnant with this alien queen. Granted, it's not one of those, I want to keep my baby. She wants to kill it. <laughs> right, which is a whole conversation about, like, abortion and women's rights that we could mm-hmm. go into. And You mean a woman being like, hey, I would like to handle my condition myself. And all of the men being like, mm, we'll get to you later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, D- Dylan is like, no, 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 no. Tight, sweetie. Help, help us do this, then you can abort the baby, a.k.a. Right. commit suicide. Yeah. And, and yeah, then we have a romance, which I don't mind Charles Dan's dying so early because, A, it is shocking. Yes. But I do understand your complaint where it's like, well, what's the point if he's going to die so early? I don't know if I have one for you. No. <laughs> I think it sex. plays like subversion because we think that he's going to be the new Hicks, right? He is going to be the male lead of the film. So I think mm-hmm. it's this film's attempt to say... Oh, that's not the movie we're making. We're not making Aliens. I also don't disagree with you, Chardet. I do think it's troubling that, once again, in this female-driven action film slash horror film, we once again have to have this romance. The reason I give it a pass is because I love the chemistry between the yeah. two actors. And it's I good. think Charles Dance is doing a really good job. But you're right. Like You could remove this piece, and the film would still work. It's really good. And he, you know, for me, when I first saw it, I was like, he's a robot because he's so still. Oh, yeah. he's and I so love quiet, his delivery. Yeah. So quiet, like a, a quiet storm. I love mm-hmm. it. The, the fact that they cut out the sex scene, though, I'm also like, you're either giving it to me or you're not. Like this whole wake up in bed thing, like, oh. And they're still wearing weird. clothes for the they're most part. I'm clothes. like, no, I need to see him get in the shower with her. I'm honestly mostly bothered by the fact that he, he dies not really knowing. Because he, he keeps asking her, what's going on? What? And she never exactly. tells him. <laughs> and he he dies before he even like gets, because he, he knows anything. He's not in the scene when she's telling the warden like what it is. Mm-hmm. So he literally knows nothing until he dies. Well, you asked and you found out, so... <laughs> I kind of like it because I'm imagining her being like, well, I'm just going to keep my alien life separate from my romantic life. Stop. (laughs) (laughs) Which is another, like, we had an interview in Clubhouse with Craig Perry, who produces all the Final Destination films. Mm -hmm. And for Final Destination, it's the same thing with aliens. It's like, you can't get around 
not having the setup, right? Because you have mm-hmm. to take account for new people joining in the series maybe every later. Time. Every time. So by this time, though, I'm like, Ripley, you need to spit it out. Like, mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm so sick of you holding this information. <laughs> you don't want to know. I just need to, know. just tell them. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, no, I, I, that, that was an issue for me. Like, when they were doing the autopsy, I'm like, look, bitch, they're in space. Just tell them, look, there might be a parasitic creature inside her lungs. I don't even fucking know. But isn't it because she doesn't, like, she doesn't trust men because they always work for the company who wants to murder her so that they can keep right. this alien. Like, I guess that's the only way I can rationalize it is that she's saying, I've tried to confide in people before. I don't get belief. Like really, that is her story yeah, in the second film. But when you're busting it open, <laughs> <laughs> when you're massaging the neck like that, <laughs> like when you, you know, when you did the thing, you might as well just be completely honest. <laughs> like... <laughs> this is fair. Yep. Now, I do want to point out, so, I mean, like, you know, we mentioned the assembly cut versus theatrical. The first 30 minutes of this movie, because I think the alien bursts out at the, I think I wrote the 30-minute mark. Uh, oh, no, 28 minutes. The assembly cut has a lot more. It's like, The opening itself is drastically different. Like, the whole thing with Ripley being found on the beach, the cows, mm-hmm. none of that's in there. There's a lot more character beats in this first 30 minutes. So much more. Which, the reason it was kind of theatrical is because the studio was like, um, we need to get to the get alien Get to the faster. alien. Fucking idiots. Which, doesn't that sound like Hellraiser Bloodline to you? It really does. <laughs> Just, where's Pinhead? Where's the alien? Where's Freddy? Just shut the fuck up. We don't care if we don't care about the characters. I will say that I actually really like the first 30 minutes of this movie, if only yeah. because I do think the world building is very, very good. Yeah. The fact that you don't get to see the outside world, you only ever see the interior prison in the theatrical cut is Mm -hmm. such a huge missed opportunity. Like, I can't imagine. People complained when it came out that the film world felt small, and I don't know how you could think otherwise. Yeah. I mean, it also, like, a lot of these interiors look just like the fucking ship in Alien. They really do. Yeah. Which, again, makes me yearn for that all-wooden planet. (laughs) The beautiful opening scene with the water, with the ocean, ocean, it's on planet. It's so good, the water, right? it's beautiful. Yes. It's very, I'm like, if anything, Fincher, like, that's a beautiful shot. Yeah. <laughs> you had nothing else to complain about. Like, that's great. Okay. So. I'm glad that you brought that up because if nothing else, if people don't like this movie for its themes and its dourness, and yes, it's fucking oppressive masculinity and religion. Mm-hmm. Can we all just agree that this movie is gorgeous and textual in a way gorgeous. that, like, the other films in this series have n- Well, I don't want to say that they haven't been, but it's different. It's got a slimy, dirty, grimy, like, you know, we talked about William Gibson, and I feel like you can feel the cyberpunk in that, as well as, like, the shittiness of the 90s. Like, we are firmly into that era. And I think Fincher brings a lot of that character in, and then he builds on that for his successive films. Sorry, and that was a lot. It, no, it's very it's very Fincher, right? Now that we know him as a director, you can see mm-hmm. his thumbprint on it. You're like, it's very gritty. It's very dark. And he yeah. continued that as he went on with his career. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that's maybe a good start then. Let's, um, let's talk about what happens in this movie. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. So over the credits, we see isolated shots of Ripley, Sigourney Weaver, as well as Hicks and Newt in hypersleep. And of course, there's that familiar creeping presence that's infiltrating their cryotubes. What do y'all think? I mean, I, I again, I was three when this movie came out. What do y'all think that audiences thought when it's like, oh, Hicks and Newt are dead immediately? <laughs> 
uh, they were pissed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine they would be very upset, but I will say I love these opening credits. I love them. I love them. I love them. They're yeah, so they're gorgeous. Really good. I love when people take a risk on their opening credits and it's not just title, title, title. It's like, we're going to start the story now. Mm-hmm. I love it. You know exactly what's happening, but it's filmed in such a way that it's not spoon feeding it to you. It's very much, do you know where the alien is? All you need to know is that bad shit is about to go down. There's a mm-hmm. shot of the face hugger like extending over Newt's yeah. face, and it's so fucking creepy. It's so good. Mm-hmm. It's so good. So it makes me think, like, as I'm rewatching, I'm like, oh yeah, this is what I loved about this movie. This is like a director's choice. This is brilliant. And then it just takes a dive from there well again you speak up when these things happen i'm dying to hear this okay (laughs) all right so there is a fire that starts on this ship and the emergency procedure is to jettison the crew into space so we see this eev ship fall down to earth on fury 161 which is a convict planet run by a skeleton crew of 25 male inmates and there's a lice problem and there is a oh lice Oh my problem. god, the lice. Okay, can I just ask, this may sound really ignorant, but <laughs> my best friend, she's white, she actually just got lice with her baby and her husband. Oof. I've never had to experience that, because black people, I think it's our hair, mm-hmm. the coarseness of our hair, but also the, the oils that live in our hair, we, we never get lice. Uh-huh. But if, do they look like that? Okay, so I, I've never had lice either, although I used to love getting lice checked in school because the pencils going through your hair feel so good when they rub your scalp. <laughs> <laughs> so you like a head massage is what you're saying. <laughs> so, well, okay, but I, head lice specifically, I think are like tiny. They're like fleas. Yeah, they're quite tiny. Like you do need to part people's hair and like inspect it closely. But you can right. see them with your eyes. You don't need a microscope or anything. But like lice is the plural form form of louse. And I think when I hear louse, I think of something bigger. So I think these are just space lice. <laughs> Okay, because I was like, that's what's in your hair? Oh, my God. They, I think they beefed them up a little bit. Well, yeah, because if they were that big, it would be easy just to pull them out. Like, you wouldn't have to get a special shampoo to get night light lights right. in your hair. Mm. So then it makes me wonder, from a screenplay point of view, I mean, none of this makes sense, but, like, why introduce <laughs> the lice if they don't play some sort of part? Okay. There was an anecdote. So in one of Fincher's first meetings with executives, and Weaver was present the first time they met, she pulls him aside and she goes, so how do you envision Ripley in this movie? And he goes, <laughs> and, she, and Weaver like takes on his mannerisms and she goes, I don't know, like bald. bald? <laughs> oh, okay. Now I'm seeing it. I'm putting it together. It was the only way to get her to shave her head. I Basically. And, and she, and she was like, and right then and there, I was like, all right, man, I'm in your boat. I get it. <laughs> Yeah, I do think it's a way to visually distinguish Ripley to suggest, okay, she has now moved into a different phase of her life. In a way, I think it also supports a lot of the more academically oriented readings that have come out of the first two films, which is like how Ripley adopts masculine mannerisms. So this third film is like, okay, let's just go all the way. Let's dress her in men's clothing. Let's shave her fucking head. From one to three, her hair gets shorter with each movie, and I kind of like that she gets more butch, for lack of a better term. Yeah, she's a gem teacher. There we go. (laughs) Originally, I was going to say butch Ripley, but then, I don't know, I'm wary. I think Ripley is just such a fucking fascinating figure, and I think it's one of the reasons why people gravitate to her so much, because... Shade, you're not wrong in saying that women are constantly defined by their sexuality and also their ability to procreate. And the Alien franchise is all about pregnancy. 
Mm-hmm. And especially in the second film, Ripley becomes a surrogate mother to Newt. I mean, I know it'd be upsetting to people who like to, but I love that they walk that back so that they can give her a different kind of arc in this third film. But especially in the third film, they're struggling with her masculine and feminine sides. Like she looks butch, but then she's also mother to the scariest fucking monster in the universe. And that, I think, is my problem with a lot of this film. It's that we we have the shaved head. We have the very toned body. She's assertive. Mm-hmm. But we still have to remind you guys, this is just a woman. So, like, when she's about to be sexually assaulted yeah. or when she's impregnated and now the conversation is about her womb. It's like, we're going to remind you that she can strong and tough, but she's a woman, you guys. Like, it's just frustrating. Yeah, definitely. Me. To me, this is much more a condemnation of men particularly when you start to investigate how these men have had to adopt religion and more specifically a vow of celibacy just because they literally can't handle their own fucking urges. Like to me, that is, wow, men are shit. And then this woman comes in, (laughs) the first woman comes in and the first thing that they can do is try to rape her. That was my mindset too. I was like, well, why don't these men just fucking like not do this? But yeah, I, I kind of get that view from it too as well, Joe, where it's like, yeah, I feel like this movie, if anything, is like condemning them because, again, Ripley's our protagonist. But other side of the same coin, I guess, it's like, why do we need a scene of sexual assault in our alien movie, you know? Or Thank attempted you. sexual assault. Why? Why? We know she's a woman. Like, we get it. She's on a planet with a bunch of prisoners. Like, I love Charles S. Dutton in this. Mm-hmm. He's wonderful. My problem with it, too, sorry to cut you off, Joe, is just like the last five or six inmates are redeemed. They are redeemed. Yes. Even the one that like almost sexually assaults her in some sort of way. He's kind of like in action. And I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. No. During the chase and bait sequence, or maybe it's the, the, the toxic waste trapping sequence, but one of them. She makes eye contact with like two of her assaulters because mm-hmm. she's like helping them, and then she looks at them and she realizes who it is, and they—it's like this eye acting moment. But yeah, nothing really comes of it. She definitely kind of gives them the nod, like, "Okay, well, I guess it's humans versus aliens," kind of like what we talked about in the space mall. Put aside our differences, guys. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, unity. It is frustrating, but to me, again, this does build on the gender politics a little bit from the first film, where you know we had. Is she the captain or is Dallas the captain? But then really Mm -hmm. that second film where she's just the crazy lady who nobody believes until all of a sudden these masculine Marines get their asses handed to them. And that's what's interesting though, right? Because uh, as much talk as they wanted to be like, oh, we have to make it not like alien or aliens. But a lot of the beginning of this, at least in terms of like people not believing her about the alien, like especially Mm -hmm. the warden, is just like aliens. It Mm -hmm. is. Yeah. It's the same. It's absolutely the same. And it's also really interesting to me, as I mentioned earlier, we have this storyline that's led through a woman, Mm -hmm. uh, Ripley, through Sigourney Weaver. And it's a, like you're saying, condemnation of men. And it's all men behind the scenes and in front of the scenes. The writers are all men. The director is a man. So I'm like, is it actually condemning men or what men think is condemning for them? I feel Uh, like if we had more women input, a woman would say, this is not, you guys aren't actually self-punishing yourself. I mean, maybe this is just me too, but honestly, like, I mean, I'm walking into this with mostly a fresh mindset of like, okay, I don't remember the specifics of this movie. And again, I forgot the sexual assault happened. I forgot the sex scene happened and I forgot the sexual assaults happened. Mm -hmm. When I started, I was like, I'm surprised there's not a rape scene in this movie because it's prisoners. And I was like, wait, why am I thinking? I don't want a rape scene, but I'm just like, I'm thinking to myself, I'm surprised there's not a rape scene. And then of course, when it happened, I was like, oh, huh. 
Yeah. And honestly, we'll get there, but rewatching that, I, I'm not a victim of sexual assault, but it's still very triggering. Oh, yeah. Like, it's it made me too. very uncomfortable. And it's very long. Yeah, it's long. Unnecessarily long. It does feel set up to position Dylan's power struggle about trying to keep these men in line. Like, I I can't help but wonder if they said, okay, it's male inmates because we have made this arbitrary decision to make it an entirely male population. So fine. And then it's like, okay, well, how do we introduce Ripley into that? We're going to have to deal with all of these sexual assault and like men being unable to control their urges. But also, if we want to keep the Dylan stuff in there and how religion factors in, this is a good way for him to assert his authority. And that's a bad I don't bad agree thing with it. <laughs> for this reason, too. It's like you're going to use a woman sexual assault to make a man look like the hero and Mm -hmm. uplift him Mm -hmm. yeah that's a terrible take (laughs) well and even what they do to dylan like i really enjoy charles s dutton in this role so i'm with you 100 percent on that they do him dirty at the end of this movie Mm mm-hmm I do think that his role was extended, though, in the assembly cut, right? It is, yeah. He gets more speeches. You get to see him interacting with the other prisoners and how he keeps authority compared to the warden. And he has a really nice friendship with Ripley, which, again, is to my point. I'm like, they didn't have sex. They didn't have any sexual tension. But it's a really nice friendship where he is looking after his guys, but he has some affection for her. Despite the fact that he's a murderer and a rapist of women, his own words. Yes. And he's making it, he's atoning for it by helping her. Mm-hmm. He's trying to, at least. So I, I like that they kept that separate. I just wish Clemens could have been the same thing to me. Right. You can support Ripley without either having to touch her um, or save her. Honestly, though, she, I mean, again, maybe this is dangerous territory here, but she, she comes on to him. Oh, she I don't does. know how extended this scene is in the, in the assembly cut compared to theatrical, but yeah, she's very much like, do you find me attractive? It's true. She's horny as hell. <laughs> she deserves a good fuck. I'm sorry. A good dickhead. She did. She totally did. I get it. It's just one of the decisions I'm like, there's a lot going on right now, girl. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's totally fair. I think that's totally fair. Well, I think we're having two different conversations here, right? There's, does it work for us within the world of the film and from a storytelling perspective? And it's like, yeah, you know, some of it more yes than others. And then there's the exterior of like the film that's actually getting made and the franchise that is one of the few that has actually got a female in the lead that has an entirely male-driven production team. And this film is just oh so early 90s in that regard, right? There's only certain stories we can tell about women. It has to involve certain scenarios, and Mm -hmm. it's a time capsule in that regard. Yes. Sadly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we've got Clemens. He finds the wreck. He finds her body. These beach scenes are amazing. They're fantastic. They're great. Can't believe they were cut. Yeah. Um, And then he brings her in. He informs everybody. And we start to get our sense of what this world is. So we meet Morse, who will eventually be the last man standing. He is played by Danny Webb. He's kind of the spokesperson for the... I don't want to say uneducated, but the people who are not Dylan. He is frequently crank-tankerous in terms of his treatment of Ripley. He wants to sell everybody off because he only wants to look out for himself, and then he gets redemption. I will confess that I actually had a lot of trouble 
telling a lot of these inmates apart. Okay, thank you. Oh, I didn't want to say it. I didn't want to say no, it. No, you absolutely need to say it, particularly as we get further into the film. You're like, wait, who's still alive? How many of the 25? No, it, it, during the toxic waste trap and during the bait and chase sequence, like we're seeing people die and I'm like, oh, like I feel like I should know who this is, no, but I no. don't know who I just watched get exploded to death. Yeah. They all have the buzz cut, and yes. then outside of obviously Dylan and Boggs and Ripley, I'm like, you're all white, so yep. I don't understand. Yep. I don't know who is who. Racial diversity, point. everyone. Cast some different skin tones. Right. Then we would know. We're like, okay, cool. There's so and so. I don't know who died. <laughs> I mean, we talked about how Fincher fought with the costume department. They really didn't like him. Part of me was like, could you not have even just had their names stenciled on their jackets or yeah. something so that we could try to keep them apart a little? <laughs> <laughs> or, like, for me, in the real prison, like, prisoners are divided by their color jumpsuit. So, like, tier one, tier two, tier three. Yeah. Right. There are some oranges in there. I kept getting Morse, and I want to say it was Aaron? Aaron's mixed up? I kept getting those two mixed up. So, Aaron is 85. That is the yes. lapdog to Superintendent Andrews, who is mm-hmm. played by Brian Glover. And I refer to him as 85 to keep him distinct, and he is played by Ralph Brown. But yeah, we, we've got Boggs, we've got Reigns, we've got <laughs> Junior. But then who's the crazy one? The crazy one is Gollick. Gollick. Okay. That one I knew because I kept saying Gollum in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Once he escaped from the bed, I was like, where are you? I don't know what happened to you. <laughs> yeah, because he, he, his face is like black the whole time. He, yeah. He's basically wearing black face for the last part of this movie until he dies. <laughs> uh, can we call it Scorch Face? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I knew that because he was the clearly like one who was actually insane. Because he yeah. was traumatized from just seeing the alien kill Murphy. No, Murphy dies in the fan. Whatever. He yeah. sees someone get killed. So when did Gallic die, though? Gallic dies when he lets out the alien. So they yeah. trap the alien in the toxic waste room, and he goes to see it, lets it out, and he walks in, and we just hear him scream, and then it runs out. Mm-hmm. Oh, see, I okay, because I was just like, um, I, I think you skipped him. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> so, so, but that's the thing gone. with the assembly cut is, though, like, Gallic's role is played down so much, and there's no scene of him letting the alien out. So the way the theatrical cut is edited, it's like, once the explosions happen, there is nothing where they trap it in a room. It yeah. just goes to the sprinklers, and we're to believe in the theatrical cut that the alien is still loose. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. It does help with some of the pacing, because we do get a bit of a, oh, okay, we did this, and then we have to walk it back and do it again. So I think that's why the end of the film in particular starts to feel protracted because it's like, well, didn't we do this already? The studio wanted that cut out because they thought that trapping the alien immediately made the alien less threatening. Right. Okay. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't help, honestly, (laughs) for me. I'm like, that was a little easy. I think Fincher was more concerned about Gallic's story. Yeah. Hmm. We haven't said, Gallic is played by Paul McCann, and a lot of the assembly cut early footage does involve stuff with him. So we get scenes with Boggs, who is played by Leon Herbert, and Reigns, who is played by Christopher John Fields, complaining to Dylan about how they don't like him because he smells Mm -hmm. and he's crazy. And a lot of this has to do with the depiction of this unnamed religion in the film. So Mm. all of the men abide by it because they follow Dylan and they don't follow the warden but it seems like Gallic has taken this to a whole new level because Gallic reveres the alien as a dragon or like a figure of worship so again it's kind of like where the monks in that previous draft worship 
or they they believe that the alien has been sent to punish them. That, I think, all falls squarely onto Gallic. But when you cut out most of his scenes, he just becomes a character that doesn't make any sense in the theatrical cut. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm curious, what do you folks think about this alien birthing scene out of the ox? That's great. I love that it's cross-cut with the funeral. Mm -hmm. And it is fantastic. They called it a Bambi burster because the aliens on all fours. Mm-hmm. I love the mm-hmm. idea of like the, whatever <laughs> organism the facehugger gets onto, like the alien takes some of its attributes. Yes, and I think that's a different one for this film because we've never seen it come out of anything other than humans. Right. Mm-hmm. Question. Mm-hmm. Yes. The actual version's a dog. Yeah. Right. And yep. this version was an ox. So where did these animals come from, and what did I miss? Well, so <laughs> I know that the actual the dog, like one of the inmates, has a dog. I yeah. don't know how, but <laughs> in the assembly cut, it seems to be that they actually keep ox because when they find Ripley's ship on the beach, you see two ox like chained to the, I think the ship and mm-hmm. they're dragging it along the beach. So yeah. like ox seems to be like their, one of their labor animals. So that, and that makes sense when you cut it out though. And they're like, I guess just give one of the inmates a dog is what the studio said. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the ox makes sense because they actually use them for labor. Okay, okay, yeah. cool. So then uh, assuming the spaceship crash lands um, and then the little creature finds the ox and mm-hmm. impregnates it. Okay, yeah. so that's where we are. I was yeah. like, was the ox on her ship? What did I miss? <laughs> oh, yeah. Did you not see the ox in the back? <laughs> there is like a two-second shot of the ox dragging the ship on the beach. Mm-hmm. And so that, okay. that, that's supposed to put in your mind, oh, yeah, there's ox here. And then, yeah, they have the, the, the part where the guys are like, oh, this ox died. That's weird. But really, it's just been impregnated by the facehugger. Yeah, because okay. I think in the theatrical cut, you actually get to see a dog attacked. Yeah, you do. Yeah, so we've got an alien on the loose, and we've got all of these religious convicts. We've also got a warden who really doesn't like Ripley being around. And I do love the tension that comes out between the warden and Clemens and Ripley, and how Ripley just does not give a fuck about wandering around and getting the answers that she wants. Yeah, I'm sorry to go back. I do love the autopsy scene. Oh, yeah, we can talk about the autopsy. I actually, okay, this is going to sound terrible. I wish we had more shots of this little girl's open chest. I just love the sound. I love the sound. I thought I read somewhere they did, and they thought that was way too far. Yeah, they said that it was like, even filming it, like they had trouble doing it. (laughs) So, but yeah, I'll agree, Joe, the sounds are great. Whenever Clemens pulls out the chest cutter saw, and he's like working, oof, oof, oof. Yeah, and just the way that Charles Dance plays this... You know, Sharda, you mentioned before that it's a very kind of quiet and almost subdued performance. His line delivery is just so still. And the way that he's looking at her, like, I will do this because you have asked me, but I will need some fucking answers from you after this. No, that's all foreplay, that whole scene for me. I'm like, she likes it. He likes it. (laughs) I like it. Hey, hey. So after we cut this girl open, you want to... Want to go back and fuck? Yeah, he's like, saw it open. Pull open the chest cavity. Oh, <laughs> oh my. <laughs> Getting the vapors. It is sad that she loses new. I will note that when he does ask, was she your daughter? She says no. And mm-hmm. I laughed out loud because I was like, bitch, what was all that? The last movie then? <laughs> like, I mean, technically. It's your daughter. <laughs> it's your daughter. You, like, you didn't give birth to her, but that's your daughter. Like, Just insert the Mariah Carey gif. No, I don't know her. Yeah, I'm like, we've been through this. We spent a whole movie about 
this. <laughs> it's your, that's your kid. Come on. <laughs> it is funny, though, that he never asks about uh, Hicks, right? <laughs> it's like, nobody yeah, cares so about that Hicks. Your husband? He's just gone. <laughs> oh, man. He does yeah. ask later if she's married. and Right. You know. Yeah. And she does not mention her daughter. She denies everyone. She really does. Everything. <laughs> I think she's so closed off in this film. I mean, a lot of people have speculated that this film is about accepting your imminent demise. Like, she is partially grieving, but honestly, I think she's partially suicidal. Yeah. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) You're like, yes, obviously, you dumb bitch. Obviously. No, (laughs) no. no. This movie is depressing because our protagonist is depressed for the entirety of its runtime. Yeah. She's tired, too. Like, she's she's like, this again? (laughs) 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 How many times? (laughs) What's the line she has? She's like, um... Oh, you've been in my life for so long, I can't remember anything else. Oh my god, I fucking, I love that line so Mm. much. That is the beating heart of this movie for me. That moment where she just goes, she's like, fine, nobody wants to come with me, I'm gonna go into the basement, and she literally is like, do you need me to explain that to you, 85? (laughs) (laughs) Let me make it clear, I'm talking about a metaphorical basement where I will go and face my fears against a creature, and... Yeah, and then she says that quintessential line. And to me, I'm just like, oh, that is this third film. She's fucking tired. She's done with this. It's like Sydney in Scream 3. Yes. When she's finally like, I've been through this before. Mm -hmm. Can we just get on with it already? Get on with it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, they're so tired by the third movie. They're like, just kill me. Honestly, I'll kill myself (laughs) at this point. (laughs) Yeah, I swear. I'll come back with higher energy in the fourth film. But right now, I am done with this shit. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So I get why Ripley is like, so I get like, she's hesitant to tell people because she's just like, I can't explain this one more time mm. it's my fucking business <laughs> yeah like okay so there yeah there's a bunch of stuff that happens where it's like she doesn't want to talk about it the warden doesn't want her to move around he finds out that she's a high priority asset and he bitches clemens out for insubordination that's something that's different in this assembly cut can we talk about the scene where she reactivates bishop who is played by lance hendrickson i love it so okay when i was a kid i had never seen any of these movies before and i think it was probably when Resurrection was coming out, or Resurrection had just hit VHS. Okay. I asked my cousin about it, because he loved them, and he, until he told me all about them. But, like, I think Alien 3 was on TV, and the first scene of any Alien movie I ever saw was this Bishop scene. Oh, that's scary. It scared the <laughs> shit out of me. It is so horrific. It is so gross. But it's really good. Mm-hmm. I will say, as much as I don't enjoy this film because of some of the themes, there are some really standout moments in this film Mm -hmm. that I'm like, this is really great. And this is one of them because the practical effect in this is perfect and it holds up very, very well. And I did enjoy it a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I do think it looks really good. I like the fact that we get Henriksen into different variations as well. Like, if we just had this little taste of him, I think it'd still be good. But I love getting to see him play his human counterpart, who's just obviously the biggest dick ever at the end. <laughs> mm-hmm. And just to, you know, stay on theme... Bishop also asked to die by suicide because he says that it hurts. So he's like, can you just please unplug me? I hurt. That's true. I hurt. Oh, I just got that connected. Oh, sad. You don't walk out of this movie feeling good. No. Uh, I do because of Ripley's decision, because of the agency it grants her. Yeah, I mean, no, I, I know that, but it's still like, oh, this character I've been following around for at the time, true. 14 years mm-hmm. is, um, or 13 years, um, is dead. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, fair. Fair, fair. It feels like, you know, a proper send-off, yeah. at least, for some characters that we've loved for a long time, if if we had believed that this was the third and final one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it felt apropos and a, a good ending, except for I, I, I was a little disappointed that there wasn't more Alien versus Ripley because right. she's impregnated. It's like, what? I think, if anything, this is what makes this movie stand out the most for me, is I love those scenes with her and the alien. They are few and far between, because, mm-hmm. again, we're looking at a two-and-a-half-hour movie here. But, again, that that iconic shot when it confronts her in the infirmary, like, it's so good. I actually, I, I, this is something I've never noticed before, but, like, when she's trying to, when they're trying to get it in the, uh, lead it to the lead room, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where she grabs its tail. Yes, and it doesn't it doesn't come to her. It doesn't do anything until Dylan puts her in a chokehold. Oh yeah, because she's being threatened. Yes, and I, I've never like no again, because I haven't seen this movie forever. I love that. I think it's such a great little like touch. And I, I would like more of those scenes. Mm-hmm. But again, I don't think this movie's about the alien. Oh, no, no. <laughs> it's called Alien. <laughs> It's not called Ripley. It should be called <laughs> Ripley's Done With It. <laughs> Ripley's Believe It or Not, it's over. Boo. <laughs> Which, by the way, um, we never talked about the cover of the poster for the assembly um, cut, which has like the alien to the third power. Trace, could you actually make your name Trace to the third power <laughs> now? So I'm cubing the three, which cube. would be three times. No, that's 27. Trace cube. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> My math. God. <laughs> I'm Bainty Trace. <laughs> I want to hop back to that quintessential scene where we first see the alien and Ripley and it doesn't attack her because to me, this is actually, it sounds a little weird because it's so early in the film, but this is the highlight for me. It's actually halfway, if we're talking about the assembly cut, it is exactly halfway through the film. Oh, really? Okay. Yep. It is an hour and 12 minutes of a two hour and 24 minute movie. (laughs) I find the back half of this does drag for me. Yeah. It's because mm-hmm. it's plagued with the with the two big let's trap the alien set pieces which go on Whoops, forever. Whoops, you got out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gotta get him again. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. I, I, I wonder if maybe that's where the theatrical cut gets something right is if you lose the, the toxic waste room mm. set piece and then you just have the, the bait and chase in the lead area set piece. Like, I wonder if that maybe makes it flow a little bit better. That being said, well, is it the toxic waste one where the guy is no fuck that's the bait, bait and chase too where the guy's like running through the hall almost makes it to the door and yes, then just like and then explodes, explodes. <laughs> yeah <laughs> there is some good gore in in that bait and chase scene mm-hmm. yeah but that still you're talking about joe i mean that is iconic alien franchise snapshot right there if anything it's the most popular frame of the series where the xenomorph is right next to her face and mm-hmm. she's cowering and she's crying and his little yeah i love it yeah it's so great no his little and, and it kind of snarls at her it. and she makes that she makes that uh mm-hmm. what i love too is that if she wasn't pregnant if she didn't have that queen inside of her oh she'd be dead ripley would have been dead right then and there yeah mm-hmm. yeah I think the other reason for me that this all works is because of the confluence. So even if we don't like Clemens and the love affair, this is the scene where we get his backstory, we get his tragic end, we get this great scene of Gullick watching and witnessing okay. all of this, and then Thank Clemens you for saying dies. That. Because this Clemens backstory I had completely forgotten about until I rewatched, and mm-hmm. then I had to rewind it, and I said, what the hell did you just say? Yep. <laughs> like... He killed 16 people. <laughs> no, sorry, 11 people. 
<laughs> this scene is also extended in the assembly cut. And I actually was kind of pissed about this because because Gallic is what was cut out of the film basically in the theatrical cut, there's nothing of him watching them yeah. in the theatrical cut, which means the awesome awesome fucking shot when the alien gets on the bed and you see the mattress like lower to almost touch the ground which i think is a fantastic shot like is not in the original cut of this film it's like mm-hmm. oh man like, i think the build-up to clemens's death is great but in the theatrical cut it's just oh he's talking boom he's dead yeah it's very short you just see Gallic kind of looking and squirming a little bit and then the alien is behind clemens and i do also love that it wraps him in the plastic because that's the way that he found ripley at the beginning of the film so it's like Ew. he finds her in that way and then she sees him in the end at that way so why doesn't the xenomorph destroy Gallic? Uh, I think because it's got its prize at that point. The xenomorph is very much an agent of chaos. It's very strategic, but it also doesn't have any rhyme or reason to its actions. So it just disappears up the vent. Yeah, I'm like, he's right there. He's strapped to the bed, like easy prey. Well, but... I wonder if, he, if once he smelled the queen on her, he was like, oh, got to get out. Right. I'll True, be back for like... you later. <laughs> Dude, I love the xenomorph just like hopping around this this prison, just like I'm gonna go over here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna explore over here. It's like giving himself the grand tour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like on vacation. And honestly, the xenomorph is the killer from Among Us. It's just using the vent system, popping out, grabbing people, <laughs> popping back yeah. down. Like who me? No, I didn't kill anybody. Actually, that scene where she's yelling at the like the lead guard guy that like, you need to listen to me, and the xenomorph just takes its arms and scoops him. It's so funny. I like so died good. laughing. I was like, "What?" <laughs> oh my god! I love that the warden just dies. Goodbye. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. I was like, you actually don't see a lot of the alien in this film. I mean, again, you you do see it, but it's not as prominent as you would think it is. As you, no. think, it would, as you think it would be. Yeah. And and I do think that's unfortunately where a lot of your memories of bad CGI come into, because when you do see it in a lot of shots when it's moving around, it's just not as convincing as when we saw it on the move in Alien and Aliens. There's always that shot. Honestly, it's when in Aliens, when I think it's Hicks or no, it's Hudson. It's Bill Paxton, whatever. They're looking up into the ceiling, and he just see he turns a flash out, and he just sees all of them like crawling towards him. <laughs> oh, so it's great. Upsetting. But they look <laughs> so much like puppets crawling towards him. Like they yeah. don't look real. I mean, sorry, they don't look particularly good for me, but they look real. Right. But they're going for a different movement on the alien here, so they kind of had to use CGI unless they were going to use like stop motion. Mm-hmm. There is a scene somewhere, I can't remember, but it, it does look very, like, claymation to me. And I was mm. like, but why? <laughs> <laughs> and there's also a scene where Ripley, I can't, I know we're jumping around, but I wanted to mention this because you mentioned the puppetry of the xenomorph. Ripley goes, once she realizes that she is impregnated with the queen, she goes back out to find the alien mm-hmm. and she hits something. And nope, that's not it. But she looks up and there, it's kind of chilling. It's like yeah. resting on its yeah. forearm. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, hi, bitch. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. <laughs> stretches an arm out her, at her. It's a very drag queen move. Like, yes! hey, girl. It's he been a while. Move he, he moves his hand, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he's kind of like, ah. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, surprise, Ripley. Like, what you me. doing? <laughs> 
just like, this is so funny. Like, he's just chilling. He's just chilling, like, hanging out. Oh, God. I can't remember what it was that I saw, but there was some kind of alien parody. It might have been South Park or something else, but the xenomorph bursts out of someone, and then it's like, ah, surprise! And then it puts on a top hat and cane and does, like, a song and dance number. And it was like, (laughs) every time I see a xenomorph now, I'm always like, put on a top hat. Put on a top Seriously, hat. <laughs> it's just, it's not supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be horrifying. But that scene where he's just like hanging out. It's Spaceballs, Joe. Is it Spaceballs? Okay. Spaceballs. Space yeah, Spaceballs. <laughs> Apparently it does the hello, my baby. Hello, yes. my darling. The yes. the frog thing from Looney Tunes. <laughs> Thank you for indulging me. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen Spaceballs. <laughs> oh, it's funny. No, I'm watching the clip right now as we speak. <laughs> All right, come back, come back. <laughs> oh my God, it's doing high kicks. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's a fantastic scene. <laughs> um, okay, right, right. okay. I do, I do, uh, this may be like a one-off thing, but I do love whenever Dylan tells her he's a murderer and rapist of women and we have Ripley that just goes, really? Well, I guess uh, I must make you really nervous. And then she sits the fuck down. Yep, mm. at this table just absolutely filled with men who presumably are in a similar boat as Dylan. I will say, though, there's a line shortly after this where she says, I thought women weren't allowed. And the response is, well, we've never had a woman here before, but we tolerate anything, even the intolerable. And I don't know about how it is for you guys, but the word tolerate like really like triggers me a little bit because it's always used with the queer community, right? Like mm. tolerance, y'all preach tolerance. Like, no, 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 no. We preach acceptance. And so tolerate is always just one of those words where I'm like, ugh, I don't like hearing that. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue because, of course, there has been an AIDS reading of this film. Like looking at this film as a bit of an AIDS metaphor. I'll confess I never saw it. And then the minute that I started thinking about it on this most recent rewatch, it is immediately there if you want to look for it. So I don't see it. Okay. Can you point it out? Absolutely. (laughs) I will say, I know that Terry Menard talked about this on his guest spot about this movie on Pod and the Pendulum. I haven't had a chance to listen to all of it, but when I went digging, so obviously we have bodies that are shorn of their hair. Mm-hmm. Ripley's progressively worsening condition. So over the course of the film, she's suffering more and more pain and she starts yeah. to look increasingly oh, yeah. worse. You've got a foe you can't fight who kills the weak as well as the strong. Like it doesn't matter who you are. It's not something that you can fight. Well, if we're going with that reading too, even like she has a death sentence anyway from having the queen inside of her. So then she makes mm. an active decision to die by suicide. Mm. And then this one I thought was interesting because I've always seen the Weyland yutani Corporation as commentary on heartless capitalism and how they don't care about people, they only care about profits. But if you twist it to look at the AIDS metaphor, you can see it as evil big pharma who wants to make money off of a phenomena and not destroy it. So they want to profit off the disease. Mm. Okay. Oh, okay. That one was very interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I can totally see, it. and again, like one, once you know that like, either the first or second draft of the of a screenplay, I'm sorry, not not this screenplay, but a screenplay for Alien Three, <laughs> did have heavy HIV metaphors in it. Right, that kind of makes sense. I mean, again, I do wonder if they showed everyone like all the screenplays. Like whenever someone new came on, they were like, "Here's the other ones that we've done. Don't do these." <laughs> <laughs> or it's like we've got a 20 foot table. Here's all the different drafts. Pick and choose <laughs> the things that you like from each of them, and we'll put it into one movie. 
No, yeah, yeah. Pull the pages out you like, put them in an order that makes sense, and that's what we're going to shoot. <laughs> you can see little bits and pieces of almost all of those drafts, right? Mm-hmm. 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 Filmmaking! Yeah, filmmaking! Filmmaking. Editing! <laughs> yeah. That makes me wonder, too. It, it's a big deal to me that there's no women behind this because there's a lot of women-heavy themes. But I'm wondering, mm-hmm. for you as, as gay men, is there someone queer on this team? Like, on the production team that I'm no, not seeing? and not that I'll confess of. that... So, prison settings, especially because, again, it's usually always men mm-hmm. in movies. It's not my favorite. It's not toxic masculinity. It's just, like, heavy masculinity. And it makes me really uncomfortable. I would not last in prison. Um, and I don't particularly like watching stories about prison because I just feel very uncomfortable. And I don't ever really like a lot of the characters. I think that's also why I never enjoy revisiting this one because it's just like mm-hmm. just a bunch of douchebag males, um, rapists or not, murderers or not. Like they're just a bunch of douchebag males. Yeah, it's a bunch of unsavory men who are locked together. And I guess to me, the piece that I find interesting about it is that pivot to religion and how these are men who have elected to stay in a prison industrial complex of their own choosing because they feel like they can't be reformed by society. Like they are better served staying here and being celibate. And they do form a sense of community. Like obviously it's not infallible because Dylan has to repeatedly assert (laughs) the tenets of this religion on them. Mm -hmm. But I do find it interesting that there's a condemnation of capitalism from Wayland yutani there's a condemnation on the way that men act around women. And then there's also this idea that you have to remove people. I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say, but there's, there's something interesting here about the depiction of a self-made prison. I think what what, what mm. you just said, you know what you're trying to say, it's similar to the movie itself. And again, I, I do have a respect for this movie now, but it's like, yeah, there's so it's trying to do so many things. And because there were so many people involved, I also, yeah, I don't know if it, I know what the film's trying to say, but I actually wanted to divert that kind of on the same level because, Sharday, one of the things you mm-hmm. said was it also, this movie deals with religion a lot, and it's not <laughs> something that you really like about it. Mm-hmm. I'm not particularly religious. I grew up Catholic, and I just don't really like the whole, like, oh, just ask for forgiveness and all is good. But then I'm also like, but people can be redeemed. But I, I just don't always like seeing religion because that's triggering for me, too. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's that, too. I'm, I'm firmly agnostic now. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up in a non-denominational Christian home, but especially as I get older and I see how detrimental religion can be to the Mm -hmm. black community, at least organized religion in the sense of pastors taking million dollar checks and Mm. buying cars and then telling their congregation not to get COVID vaccines because God will take care of them. Yeah. So what bothered me about this is, is that, I like the monk idea better, like, because there's something about monks, their philosophy is not just rooted in in religion, it's rooted to, like, the planet and the earth and treating people well, but something about Christianity. (laughs) Well, I think think because when you think of monk, you think of Buddhism a lot, and Buddhism is more of a way of life than it is a religion, but yeah, this is like, oh no, this, this this is Christian God in this movie. Christian God, yeah, we'll follow these tenets and all will be well, like you said. And they're not there, in my opinion, to get better, to redeem themselves. They're there because no one would have them anywhere else. Right. They have to stay here. Yeah, that is very true. Except for maybe, obviously, Dylan. I think Dylan actually is seeking redemption by acts, right? Like, that's the tenet of, what is it? Um, Not Marxism. Oh, my gosh. It's one of, I want to say, one of the religions we studied growing up in, like, European history where it's like, 
uh, grace is given by acts and not words, you know? So mm. while everyone there is saying, we're celibate, we're Christian, and then they go attempt to rape a woman. Right. Dylan's actually living through a practice of like, no, I am going to be a different person. Right. I mean, I think it all comes across as like, what is irredeemable? You know, if someone right. murdered someone, can they be forgiven? I don't know. Like, we don't really see a lot of these people show remorse for anything they've done. Mm-hmm. No. So I think the religious aspect comes across as, oh, we're just going to do this because it's like a, a shortcut to, to heaven. To heaven. Yeah. And Gallic <laughs> says it. Gallic has a, like, a speech to himself. He's like, all the girls used to like me. They used to. I'm mm. going to show them. But that's, that's what they're trying to do with him, too, because, again... If we're going with the monk idea, I think that's an aspect of that screenplay where they think it's the devil. He thinks that it's like the devil. He's going to make a deal with the devil. Yeah. That's why I like the assembly cut because it does give Gullick more to do in that regard. And I Mm -hmm. find that where it falls down is when he just opens the blast doors and there isn't some kind of like either cathartic recognition that he's made a mistake or I think even more fascinating it would have been neat to have seen the alien be like, cool, I've got an acolyte and just like walk by him and let him. Yes. What movie is that from where like someone thought they were untouchable from the monster and and for a second they were, I can't remember, I'll think of it. And then all of a sudden it turns on them like, oh shoot, but I was the chosen one. No, you weren't. It happens in the final girls. No... That's kind of correct, because I'm also thinking of even, like, Jason X when he gets the machete. But no, no, no. There's a specific movie where, yeah, it's like, I know what you're talking about, Shardy, and I can't remember. It's okay. We'll kick it to the listeners. You're going to know immediately, and just let us know. (laughs) But, no. I mean, I I wouldn't call these themes in this film half-baked, but I do think that because of all the the struggles with the editing and everything, that they're not fully realized. They're, like, 80% baked. Right. Yeah, like maybe there was more in another draft and it just didn't get carried over to the last one. Which is saying something about a cut that's two and a half hours long. (laughs) Fair. While we're on the subject of religion, though, I want to make one final connection. And I'm going to give credit to a professor of film and television at Tel Aviv University named Anat Zanger. Uh, She wrote a book called Film Remakes as Ritual and Disguise from Carmen to Ripley. And she actually identifies Ripley as a Joan of Arc figure. And this isn't the only person who says that. Scott Tafoya for Roger Ebert makes the same claim. But Mm -hmm. um, there's some interesting parallels, particularly in the way that Sigourney Weaver is shot. They actually make her look very similar to Falconetti, who is the star of the classic silent black and white film, The Passion of Joan of Arc, like when she gets her head shaved. But if you think about it, like the sweaty domes, the faintly monastic single sex casting of the prisoners, the fearful and hateful descriptions of women and the invocation of religious language and imagery, the whole film does have that biblical medieval feel. That's uh, Scott Tafoya. But if you look at the connections between Ripley and Joan of Arc, she wears men's clothing, she's tried, she has a shaving of the head, she's betrayed, and then she has a death by fire and recognition after death. Mm. like Ripley really is a savior figure so I think it also again only makes sense like whether you're looking at the AIDS metaphor or whether you're looking at the religious metaphor she was always going to die at the end of this movie yeah yeah I mean yes both thematically and by Weaver's demand yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) 
exactly. Contractually, yes. Contractually, religiously. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's a great arc, though. Like, from the second we see Ripley in the original Adrian, she's doomed. She's absolutely doomed. She makes it out of two movies, and then she gets to the third, and and, and she is exhausted at the the same time, like we've mentioned. Like, she's tired, and she's doomed. So I like someone, I think Trey said it earlier, it's like, this movie is about coming to terms with your mortality, which is something I I struggle with, actually. It's Mm -hmm. just like, I'm here now, but that won't be a thing at one point, yep, right, right, in my life. I will not be here. And that is anxiety-inducing. I'm sure for Ripley, it's more anxiety-inducing knowing that you actually have to do it because you will save people if you go. Mm-hmm. When you can feel that tension in a lot of the speeches that Dylan gives, particularly in the back half of the film, right, where people keep saying, oh, well, why do we have to deal with this? Why can't we wait for the company? Or why don't we just feed the alien Ripley since she's the one who brought it here? And I love this push and pull between the sense of responsibility that Dylan feels where he's like, pick up a fucking weapon and let's live our lives. Mm -hmm. And people like 85, who is like, Oh, well, you know, I've got a wife and a kid, so why can't we just wait? I'm sorry, babe. I don't want to tackle this. Yeah. I'm sorry. I I guess it's not super related, but I I do love... (laughs) Trace, if you derail this, I'm going to be pissed off at you. No, no. I was thinking of like, uh, I'm going to go back to like just when Ripley... You can tell me to stop once I say it and we'll continue with this Joan of Arc thing. But (laughs) whenever Ripley, uh, she she tricks, like she's on the computer with, I guess, Aaron... Um, trying to figure out like what the company wants and mm-hmm. like how the company immediately changes their mind. Like, they're like, oh, we'll be there in 10 days. Also, Ripley is here and she's kind of sick. Oh, um, don't terminate here. We'll be there in two hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, hold on to that thought. We're actually already on the road, so um, we'll be there in a couple hours. Don't worry. <laughs> no big deal. NBD, just like tell her to lay down, get some rest. We're going to be there soon. <laughs> That's tied to like, the other stuff about AIDS and Big Pharma. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay, so come back to this 85 thing for me, because it really resonated in a pandemic where a person was like, "Uh, my personal safety is more important than the good of all of humanity, because I have a baby. I mean, okay, it's relevant to what we're going through right now in the world. That being said, in this particular instance, I get it, man. 85, like, you got a wife and a kid, you want to go home, I get it. Like, you don't know this bitch, you want to go home. She just dropped in your lap. Mm -hmm. I don't feel that way about people that don't want to wear masks in the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's the correct response. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I wrote that down. I was like, oh, yeah. Because she even says, like, I know this is hard, but you cannot leave. Which, you know, I I don't think the alien's ever been. I think this is the most disease-y, for lack of a better term, that the alien's been, like, kind of represented as uh, out of the first three films well i think it's also the closest that we've ever come to this thing getting out right because previously it was oh it's contained on this planet and we go to it or oh it's loose on this ship but we can get rid of the ship whereas here it's like oh no they're gonna come to this planet and we don't have weapons and they probably will and there's just a few of us and also i'm sick and there's also, maybe this is a weird editing thing for me too with the pacing, but like during the chase and bait sequence at the end, like we're also cross-cutting with the Weyland yutani team like arriving on the planet. Mm-hmm. So we keep cutting from like scenes of like incredible chasing to, oh, there's people in lab coats walking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're taking their time. Like, Sweet ass time. <laughs> it's, 
But also, I like the point uh, of the script, though, I did like is that they raise the stakes. It's not just about, you know, we have to fight because if we don't, it's just going to pick us off one by one. The team coming are not coming for you. Yeah. They're coming to ki- They will kill you. That's why I think 85 is such a silly character. And unfortunately, I know that the actor Ralph Brown did not have a great filming experience on this because Mm -hmm. originally his character was supposed to be a survivor. He was not going to be killed and he was going to be hyper intelligent and very proficient. And then (laughs) he just woke up to one of those rewrites that said, okay, you're now stupid and everybody makes fun of you. And when he protested, they said, oh, okay, your nickname is now 85. Oh my God. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) It doesn't work on screen because it's handled too quickly. But the way that Waylon Yutani show up, you know, we've got Lance Hendrickson just kind of vamping it up a little bit. But almost immediately, the minute that they say, well, trust me, doesn't work, we immediately get violence and death. And it's just like, it's such confirmation that you can't trust these fucking people. Oh, 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 sorry. I, I'm looking at my notes and I'm, I'm going to go back to the sexual assault for a second. <laughs> oh, my God, Trace. <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. No, this is what happens when we go when we don't go to the plot, but it's okay. So <laughs> at the end, when someone asks her like about how she got the queen in her, her quote is, when I was in hypersleep, I guess I was violated. Mm. Yeah, I actually wanted to bring that up because logistically, um, obviously you have the face huggers and they implant you and it's in the chest. So this thing is not in her chest. This is in her womb. So I put that piece together and said, not only was she attempted a sexual assault by humans, she was raped by an alien. Well, and so I wonder if that's supposed to be like a juxtaposition, right? Like, oh, we have an off screen actual rape. Because, I mean, that's the thing, like, like the, the, the face hugger and like the impregnation, like it's always been like very phallic and rapey, right? Oh, wait, you two have lost me somewhere. Why do you think that this is different from a regular face hugger? Because it's in her womb and not in the chest. Are we sure it's in her womb? Wait, I thought it it's was by her. Womb. I thought it was hugging her heart. Was it hugging her heart? I thought it was in her womb. I think it's hugging her heart. Like I think it's in her heart. It's... You know, can I be fair? That X-ray machine was shit. You can't, like, you can't see a fucking thing on that thing. <laughs> But sorry, so so I'm not comparing it to womb stuff. But what I'm saying oh, well, is, well, then that I changed I, my position. I, <laughs> also, Trace, womb stuff, really? <laughs> no, I mean, so, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, you are correct. That's where babies go. But <laughs> we have an off-screen actual sexual assault of yes. Ripley. Yes, and of course, it's always been read this way in the other films as well, which is why people right. like to do queer readings of previous alien films where men get violated through the mouth. But this is the first time though where I think it's been put in those terms, right? Where she yes. says, I was violated. Yeah. And then, but we have it juxtaposed to an on-screen almost rape mm-hmm. by humans. I don't know if there's anything really to read into there, but I do think that's interesting that we have like two different, like one actual assault and one attempted assault. Well, and we have to see one and not the other. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's probably good that we don't see the actual sexual assault. I mean, I say sexual. Well, I guess, yeah. No, I'm suggesting that's the one we do see. Because we don't see the. Yeah, we see a very attempted, horrible assault, but we don't see the face hugger. (laughs) Our listeners are probably like ping ponging in their brains, like, (laughs) what the fuck are you people talking about? Get your shit together. (laughs) I mean, but but it, to go back to her being, I really thought it was in her womb, so this is changing a lot for me. <laughs> like, I like the movie now, guys. <laughs> I don't like it, but I still like, I was so confused. I was like, an alien <laughs> slept with her while she was sleeping, and that would be very painful and awkward. No, no, it just put on the top hat and did the high kicks, and then it was, <laughs> yeah. there was a, pra- a baby in there. Welcome to the WB. <laughs> <laughs> I love that frog. 
But logistically, I'm like, okay, you did all this stuff to check out Newt, right? You're like, you're really panicked. You didn't put two and two together that you're not feeling well and mm-hmm. your throat hurts yeah. and there's well, something inside you. There's something in here too where it's like, wait, why is it taking like a long time for this thing exactly. to pop out of her Oh no, don't do the logistical thing. No, of, like... I know. <laughs> I, I attribute it to, oh, it's a queen, so it takes longer. There we go. Oh, yeah, is that why? She it incubates longer? They do not say that, but that's what I'm choosing to believe. Sure. I mean, but to be fair, Joe, yeah, I mean, like, in every other movie, even in Alien vs. Predator, it's like, you get impregnated, and then boom, 20 minutes later, oh my, alien. Oh my god, I cannot talk about the timeline in Alien vs. Predator, where you're like, <laughs> oh, I sneezed, and then I've got a chest burster coming out of me. It's like, yeah. come no, on, no. it's too fast. <laughs> that is way more egregious than anything in Alien 3, yeah, that timeline is really sped up. <laughs> But the fact that I'm just like so confused and again, we're jumping. She gets all the way to the end. She tosses herself into the fire and mm-hmm. then it comes out. I'm like, so what was going to happen if you did decide to go with the team? <laughs> like, it was going to just come out. Well, and that, that's because, again, the thing popping out of her is theatrical. Yeah. In assembly, it oh, doesn't. Right. And I don't know. I think what... it's a big difference, though. You think it does make a big difference? I think so, because to, to actually see it come out of her is way more visceral. And it like it's so close. Like she cuts it so close in that theatrical version. Whereas here, it feels like it's more I don't want to say that it's Ripley giving up because I don't think that people who are struggling with mental illness and are having suicidal thoughts, I don't look at it as giving up. I think that's really, really bad. But in this case, it's far more of her own decision. Like, she's not under duress, like a ticking clock of, oh, I can literally feel this thing popping out of my chest. She's going out on her own terms. In theatrical, it's like, bitch, you better hurry. That thing's coming out of you. Yeah. I think in the assembly cut, there's more time spent on Bishop trying to convince Ripley to come with them. Okay. And so you get to see more of her kind of internal struggle of like, fuck, maybe I want to do this. Like You can see her struggling with that. But if we want to continue with the sexual assault thing, it's like, well, if we see the thing pop out of her chest, then it's like we're seeing the end of her assault. Oh, yeah. That's gross. Yeah. Yeah. What an image (laughs) to put us there. But to cap off the sexual assault (laughs) of this film, because I feel like we've beaten it down. This lighthearted conversation. The directing of this sexual assault is where I have a problem with Fincher. It's very, it's very tough for me. It's like, you know, she's walking, she's grabbing the robot wreckage. She's going through, she sees one person turn around, Mm -hmm. next two people, all right. And they hold her down. They put her over this pole. I'm so sorry for anyone listening to this. I should have warned you. They bend her over this pole. They're literally holding her down. And this guy approaches her from behind and he like pulls down his goggles. And I'm just like, I... Fincher, we need to have a chat. Mm-hmm. This did not have to look like this. It's so interesting to me that the MPA also didn't flag this, but so we can't see a little dead fake girl's body be cut open, but totally, this is all fine. Well, that's America, right? Well, yeah, it's America. <laughs> v- violence, uh, uh, well, no, actually, no, that's actually kind of anti America, right? Because, well, but in this case, this is sexual violence as opposed to sex. So sex not allowed. Sexualized violence apparently totally fine. Well, but it's filmed in the UK and a lot of the crew is British. I don't think that would factor into like an MPA reading though. But Fincher is American. <laughs> yeah, Fincher that's should true. Known better. That's true. I mean, I think again, this is the kind of filmmaking where we look at it through contemporary lens and say, we know exactly what's happening. You didn't need to linger. Yeah. And I just think back in the 90s, like this is right around the time that we're getting the accused. 
I think mm. just after or maybe just before. Uh, no, the accused. I think it's 88. So okay. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a little bit after, but... Um, but yeah, it's like, we're, we're not afraid to just be like, oh, well, if we're going to do a sexual assault, we have to make it very clear that it goes on and that the woman is really horribly treated. And you're like, no, no, we got that. We didn't need that. Especially yeah. seeing Ripley come after... This can't... This comes before... After her um, thing with Clemens, right? Like, this is after. Sorry, I can double check. Because I would be really interested to know, like... If it comes after, it's after. I... Oh okay. yeah, it is after. So she said, "Yeah, they've already had sex. They've already had sex. She's had. She's been. She's chosen her sexuality. She's chosen to have sex with this person. Mm-hmm. And then this violent act comes, and I'm just like, it's all very horrible <laughs> mm-hmm. to me. But you know, it's interesting. I read a blog from a young lady. Um, I don't remember her name, and I don't want to call out her blog, but she <laughs> is a victim of sexual assault, and she said this film was empowering for her. Oh, okay. Does she elaborate why? She says seeing Ripley with the shaved head and taking charge and all of that, even though she is a a victim of sexual assault, was very empowering for her as a victim. And she finds strength through this film. And I was like, well, I'm not I'm not going to judge you. You've lived through that. Like, if that helps you. I can't speak for someone who's survived sexual assault, but I do wonder if it's that scene when she confronts Dylan and she's like, I'm going to sit down and face you. She also does get to punch out Holt mechanically. So I think it's a weak defense of saying like, oh, well, she gets to get some kind of revenge or retribution. But I guess we get to see her punch a guy in the face. Yeah, I can't remember specifics from the article, but I thought it was very interesting because I went online looking to see other women's opinion and I found that one and I go, all right. So again, film is subjective. You're going to take from what, and someone, if someone is a victim and they take power from this, I do not want to take that away from them. Mm-hmm. Me, I do not take power away from this. <laughs> so right. it's just, you know, depends on who you are and how you see it. Right. Yeah. Let's put a pin in that sexual yeah. assault. <laughs> no, I mean, like, we, we beat the dead horse, but yeah. I mean, again, honest, I will not lie. That is not something I thought we were going to be discussing a lot in this episode. And so that's why we have guests. <laughs> You're welcome, I guess. But you're you're gonna do a trigger warning, right? We Before can. this yeah. thing, yeah, we okay. can. Okay, because I don't want to hurt anyone. That's good. So there's one final thing that I would like to chat about. Yeah. How do we feel about the fact that Dylan sacrifices himself? Because <laughs> I'm I'm thinking of your podcast Mm -hmm. Charday. yeah this is a case where a black man sacrifices himself for a white heroine and (laughs) i don't know why he even does it he so yes so this is a thing when we have black supporting characters sacrificing themselves for the white protagonist we call it the sacrificial lamb Mm -hmm. um um, the black sacrificial lamb you see (laughs) it a lot in film um like elise neal's character in scream 2 hallie like that's one prime example I can't remember. I think I read somewhere that Charles S. Dutton wasn't the first choice to play Dylan. Oh, really? Yeah. Someone else was, and a white man. Um, and then it just didn't work out, so Charles took the role. But whatever. He says in the film, Ripley cannot die until the alien dies. Yes. Because if she dies first, there's no guarantee that the alien like will die. Like we, They need her. Essentially, we need her because the alien's not coming after her, so we really need her. Okay. Sure. He's going to see to it at the bottom in this where the lead pipe is to keep the alien down there because the alien doesn't want anything to do with Ripley. It's interesting why Dylan couldn't take Morse's position Mm -hmm. of like being up there with her in the final moments. Yeah. Yeah. 
I don't understand that. I will never understand that. But it's a thing. It's a problematic thing where you have black characters who are just there to add a little bit of color. And then <laughs> <laughs> they're there only to service the protagonist and they die in service of the protagonist yeah. to save the precious white protagonist, especially when it's a woman. And Charles S. Dutton, I mean, like, if anything, he's such a, he's the strongest character outside of Ripley in this movie, in the assembly cut mm-hmm. to me. Right. Theatrical version, probably not. But um, his sacrificing himself just seems so wasted. Like, why? Well, especially when it doesn't die. <laughs> well, a lot of this feels like you're not going to have a climax that doesn't involve Ripley being the one who delivers a killing blow. So narratively, right. I can see it. And I kind of get that as a character arc, it's Dylan has always been, you know, this is his redemption arc, right? Like he is willing to Correct. kill not kill himself, to sacrifice himself for the good. It's just when you look at it within the larger parameters of how black characters are treated in horror, you're like, motherfucker, come on. Yeah, correct. He has to redeem himself, right? That's his arc. He, If anything, he's the only one that actually has an arc, like a fulfilling arc. Like he's on this prison planet for a reason because he's chosen to stay here because he wants to redeem for his life. He's not supposed to make friends with this woman because he thinks he's unworthy of her friendship. Right. She proves him wrong. And then at the end, he sacrifices himself for the greater good of everyone else. That's supposed to be like his heroic moment. Mm-hmm. It's just, it wasn't giving me what I needed. No. Like, I just wish it would have ended with Dylan and Ripley on the trapeze yes. thingy looking at each other and him like telling her it's going to be okay. Thank you for what you did. And then pushing her off the trapeze. <laughs> <laughs> You're done. Good. Bye. I, I wondered though, like, I mean, in, in, in retrospective, it's like, well, this is a bunch of convicts. I guess it's kind of good that it's 90% white people instead of just a bunch of black people. That's true. Right. Yes. I mean, they're all, the whole reason why we have all of these characters is so we can have a body count. Oh, right. Sure. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. so we don't really care to give them all arcs because we need bodies. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not too upset at Dylan's because he has such a full-fledging arc with I need to redeem myself. I want to redeem myself. This is how I always envisioned I was going to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this is a problem that we're still doing it today. Yes. That's where I really have the issue. Like, this was 1992. It's 2021. He also gets one of the more, like, vicious deaths because not only is he mauled by this alien, but then he gets molten hot lead poured on him. Yeah. Like, most other people just get dragged up and bit or they explode for some reason <laughs> i always just choose to believe that he's dead by that point i mean we yeah. i know we hear him crying out for quite a long time while he's being mauled yeah. by the alien i'm always like no he's he's got to be dead before that lead hits him please well i mean like why didn't he get a clemens like the tongue going through his skull which by the way great effect mm. Yeah, that was good. The the alien spends a bit of time. The alien's like, I'm really mad because you tried to drag her away earlier. So I'm going to make your death hurt. Oh, there you go. I'll buy into that. (laughs) I will say Dylan was reincarnated as Dr. Douglas Gray in Gothica and he got to be married to Halle Berry. So it all worked out. But then he died in that too. (laughs) Brutally, brutally. She chopped him up. Isn't he like an icky character in that? Well, he he is. He plays another rapist. I was going to say, I thought there was sexual assault in that. Spoiler alert for Gothica, everybody. That's the twist ending. I'm sorry. How old is Gothica? (laughs) (laughs) Like 20 years old this year, I think. But yes, he he is a rapist and a murderer in that movie. So I will never forget the scene where he kisses Halle Berry in that film. The first time I saw it, I was like, is he trying to eat her? Eat her face? Yeah, it's so aggressive. I didn't care for it. (laughs) It's Halle Berry. I I mean, mean, yeah. 
<laughs> if you're going to turn cannibal for anybody, it's going to be Halle Berry. Yeah. Yeah, Army Hammer. What a waste of cannibalism. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, honestly, that is like peak white person nonsense in 2021, isn't it? I'm good looking and also am now a cannibal. Cool. Good for you. Crazy. <sighs> Oh okay. God. Okay. <laughs> the, no, th- this has actually been quite fun. This has been one of our more conversational episodes, which I really, really like. <laughs> yeah, we did not follow any plot line, y'all. So we're gonna have to watch the movie. <laughs> Hopefully, you've all seen the movie and you knew what we were talking about. Yeah, we <laughs> hit the beats. We hit them. Jumping. We're just jumping. But I don't know if you're wrapping up, but I do want to mention mm-hmm. this very Termini- uh, Terminator style ending. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I-, I reached out to Joe when I was watching this, and I was like. I thought Terminator 2 was 92 as well, but yeah, Terminator 2 came out about 11 months before this did. When they wanted to reshoot the ending, they were told during the reshoot, by the way, Terminator has the same ending. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. (laughs) And just because we haven't talked about it, what you're saying with the reshoots is that scene where she falls, right? Yes, it's the scene where she falls. They didn't finish the um, effects on it, which obviously, honestly, in both versions, because it it looks like she's jumping into an orange cloud. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't understand the issue there. Like, it's supposed to be, like, what, molten lead, right? Why is it, like, an atom bomb that she's jumping, an orange atom bomb? <laughs> it's very Buffy falling off of the scaffolding at the end yes, of the gift. season five. Yes, no, yes. absolutely. But, yeah, so they, they were aware that it was very similar to the Terminator, but they did have it already in mind, like, before they knew that. I mean, the whole planet is a kind of foundry, so... yeah. I guess you could find a different way. I do love the piston piece, like the set piece as a visual. But yeah, it's like, well, you've got a big vat of molten something. You got to throw somebody into it at some point. Yeah. The piston was really interesting, too. As a person from Michigan who is a fan of Detroit Pistons, I thought a piston (laughs) was a like cat forever. Oh, okay. A mechanical thing that I now have seen in Alien 3. So thank you. Oh, uh, well, um, you know, shout out to our episode on Hellraiser 3 because there's a character who gets a piston through the head in that movie. I actually haven't seen that, so I need to go back and put together my piston <laughs> connective. It's almost like an MCU universe where it's yeah. the piston horror movie universe. Yeah, I need to go back. I'll watch it. I'm really excited about it now. It's very silly. <laughs> it's super silly. Um. Okay, well, that has been... Alien 3. This has been a journey, <laughs> folks. This has been fun. We covered a lot. I think a really fun way to cap off our month of threes before we move back into our regularly scheduled programming. Mm-hmm. So before we announce what we're starting uh, February with, though, Sade, where can people find you on social media and what do you want to plug? I mean, we've talked about your podcast a bit, but go into detail. So we are celebrating our third year at Afro Horror Pod, and it is the anniversary year. So every month Ooh. we are celebrating films with anniversaries. So you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at, at Afro Horror Pod. We're also on Facebook, but I suck at updating the Facebook. So good luck <laughs> to you there. We have a shop open. Ooh. It's awesome. We have some t-shirts and some mugs, you know, using um, famous black horror movies like Us and Get Out. And eventually I'll be adding some Candyman line stuff. Oh, yes. And- so go check out the store. It's on our website. And for me, I'm on Twitter at I am Chardé Sellers. I promised myself I'd tone it down more politically no. this year. But as we're taping, it's the day post-inauguration. Yep. <laughs> so new president, new rules. I'm just going to enjoy myself. So don't take anything I say there personally. I am a nice person in real life. <laughs> 
Okay, I spent a large portion of 2020 really enjoying your political tweets because <laughs> you do not let people off the hook. Like, you hold people accountable, and I loved that. I do, and I call out everyone, y'all. I'm very in the middle. I will call out Republicans. I will call out Democrats. I will call out everyone. I do not care what side of the aisle you fall under. I will also say I deleted all of my 2020 tweets like I do at the end of every year. So good luck to you if you're looking. <laughs> what? I do it every Show year. Every us year. the receipts. <laughs> Yeah, because I hate when people like 10 years, they're like tweets from 10 years ago pop up and they lose jobs. I'm like, why didn't you just delete that? Why do you have tweets from 10 years ago? Oh, God. <laughs> Let's just say that Trace and I can never run for politics based on oh my God. the things that we have. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish it could be like in Gmail where it's like, oh, like delete anything over two years old. Like if there was like a mass thing for that, then sure. Yeah, there is. Oh, tweet delete. We'll connect off- offline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <we'll do> <laughs> All right. <laughs> You'll see what I got. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers and join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners. Also, find us on Letterboxd. That is new for the year, and we are updating it constantly. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. Um, We are leaving January, and so for February, we're still finalizing the schedule a tiny bit. We're waiting on one piece of news. But what we can tell you we're doing is, (laughs) God help us, we will be ranking the Wrong Turn franchise in anticipation of the reboot that's coming out. That'll be fun. Yeah. We are also going to be covering St. Maud finally, which hits VOD services on February 12th. Yay. We'll also have a mini-show devoted to religious horror in general and an audio commentary on the 2009 3D remake of My Bloody Valentine to pair with, you guessed it, Valentine's Day. <gasps> Shocker. <laughs> Joe, we're out of threes. What are we starting with next week? <laughs> uh, well, we're going to celebrate my birthday a little bit early. So this is a birthday pick for me, Trace. And I needed to go Canadian, but I'm not going normal Canadian. I'm going totally fucked up Canadian. So we're going to watch Vincenzo Natale's Splice. Yeah. <laughs> and also content warning for that motherfucker. I was going to say content warning for that oh, movie. Oh, God. Speaking, yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes, we are talking about, we'll just say sexual assault. Sexual assault. I will say if you've never seen it and you can get past the sexual assault, I would highly suggest watching it because it is unlike anything you've seen that got released in mainstream theaters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is true. I love I it. I will endorse it. If you can you can easily skip over that part, I promise you. It's towards the end. Yeah. Yeah, but the last 20 minutes of that movie are some of the most bonkers things I've ever seen in my life. Love it. <laughs> love it. I'm so excited. Wait, you picked this movie, Joe? It's his birthday it's pick. It's my birthday pick. <laughs> What's wrong with you? God, that movie makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> We're still trying to figure that out three years in. <laughs> Listeners, never fear. My birthday pick is the end of February, and it's going to be less... Well, there's still kind of some assault in it, but it's way more fun. Oh, please. Yours is a trash heap. <laughs> yeah, mine's trashy. Um, all right. Well, until next week when we can talk about Splice. Yes. Chardet, thank you again for coming on and to returning to us. Thank you, Uno Dos Tres. <laughs> we can cross out Alien Trace. Oh, my God. <laughs> and cross out Horror Queers. <laughs> Thank you.
you've made it to the end of another bloody disgusting podcast. Congratulations. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, Nightmare on Film Street, and more. <laughs>